Welcome back, Harry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Ep- episode three. Another old fashioned, I see. It, definitely an old fashioned. That so is, uh, I'm makers. confused. You have makers now and you didn't on the last episode? Like no. you changed that quick or was it makers before too? No, uh, it was uh, Larceny. Look up Larceny. It's a okay. good. So you switched. Good, you went from yeah, Larceny switched, to makers just like switched that. Switched it up. Okay. Switched it up. All right. Yeah. You've got to try chocolate bitter sometime. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have it, it. I have it on my notes list from the last episode. Nice. No, it's good. Oh, you know what? We're going to start out because we forgot. I'm looking. I actually have my episode two notes right here. Uh, we forgot to apologize to the people, the great people of Orlando. Very yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Very sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, Orlando. I love visiting. I love coming to Disney, but that's about and, it. And sorry to the guy that was driving behind fish. Yeah. Yeah. That probably got cut out, but sorry, sorry to that <laughs> well, guy. Well, and if not, if you see us in person, ask <laughs> me to tell the story. Uh, that's fun. So, last episode we had talked about my background, which seemed way longer than it actually should have been, because <laughs> I haven't even been doing this that long. Well, at least in comparison to you. So, Are you calling me old? No, or? I'm just saying my seatbelt is buckled in right now. <laughs> I, I am ready for you to hit me with exactly how you got started. Because I don't know. I, I really don't know any of this. You've, I've heard never stories, heard this. but I haven't, heard I haven't heard like select the OG stories. Right. of like how you originally got in. There's there's a few people that have. I've actually gone. I did this in a couple of classes before. And um, it, uh, yeah, I, I've had a very interesting path in audio and cars and and all of that stuff and so yeah I, I like to tell the story i probably embellish it a little bit and and change things up here and there but uh to the best of my ability i can uh, i can kind of recount um i too was was into cars kind of at an early age i remember my sister getting a volkswagen fastback and it needing a radio and i remember putting a radio in it when i was like 15 it was the first install i did um give me and Date yourself at 15. Uh, 89. Okay. Yeah. 89 is two. Seriously? Yeah. I was born Damn, in 87. I am old. Damn, I am old. Do you ever, um, do you ever go into like uh, a gas station and you see like the, the 18 year old or whatever it is? is like oh gosh. The papers yeah. ripped to like 2003 or something. You, and you know I, my- that's probably not right. This isn't a math pod, but. It's like 2003. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to know. And I'm just uh, like, oh, my God. <laughs> I remember my dad telling me, here's the day you will realize you are old. When you get pulled over by a police officer who is younger than you, yeah, you'll realize you're officially old. And then the first time it happened, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first uh, time a cop calls you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. Um. So yeah, so that was kind of my sister had gotten this uh, this Volkswagen Fastback, and that kind of sparked my interest into cars. I grabbed a Hot VW's magazine and was instantly into Volkswagens. 
that was kind of that side of it. The audio side of it is totally different. Um, in those, those years, I would say that I was really into skateboarding as a kid. I was never like great at it. I was okay at it, had a group of friends that skated and that was kind of my passion and, and the thing I put all of my extra energy and attention into. And then when I got into high school, it kind of switched from skateboarding into bodyboarding. And that kind of started probably the end of junior high. And it was because we lived close enough to the beach that we could hop on the bus and you could bring a bodyboard on the bus and we'd go to the beach damn near every day during the summer. And it so was you've always that, been in California. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, minus minus a three month period of my parents moved us up to Kirkland, Washington for three months. My, my parents were like, yeah, I got a job offer. Great idea. Move up here and blah, blah, blah. And they hated it and moved right yeah, back sounds down. Miserable. Sorry to, to people yeah. listening. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> add, them, add them to the list. The great people of Kirkland. Um, uh, do, do, do. So, yeah. So we went to the beach a lot. Uh, a couple of my friends and we would go all the time. And we would take the bus there. And one time we're out in the water and we run into a friend of my sister's who my sister's two years older than I am. And um, we run into a friend of hers and I can't remember his name for the life of me, but um, he was basically like, Hey, I've got my car. You want me to just drive you guys home when we're done? I'm like, yeah, sure. That'd be awesome. You know, save us the, the hour and a half or hour and 10 minute bus ride and get home in 15 minutes. That sounds awesome. So we get out of the water and we go and we walk up to his car and he's got this Volkswagen rabbit hatchback and he opens the hatch for us to put our, our body boards in the back and there's no room for the boards because he has this gigantic subwoofer box. Oh wow. I have no clue what it is, <laughs> right? I have, I've not, not even on my radar at this point. Right. And somehow we cram all the boards in and we get in the car and he fires up the car and he specifically puts in this. I, I can't remember if it was a tape or a CD back then, but puts this in and it's tone loped, loped after dark. Oh, wow. And this song just goes doo 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 doo. And the car freaking shook. And I'm in the back seat. And it literally was just physically grabbing me and shaking me. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is awesome. And that was the instant. It was like somebody flipped a light switch. I have to have this. I want this. I'm all about this. I love it. And it was also the first demo. I mean, like literally somebody was putting on a specific song to show me something about their system. That's the first time that ever happened. And it was my first introduction to it. And that's that's. That's what drove me to car audio. That's cool. And yeah, it, it really was. Um, so then fast forward, I'm trying to think which car it was. I, I had a few cars. So that was 89, right? Was that, that still 89? That's somewhere in that 89, 90-ish okay. range. Yeah, because if it got to 90, I would have been driving when I was 16. So yeah, this was, Here's a quick quiz. 89, 90. Name the first American CD that was released. Oh my gosh, I have no clue what that would be. It was Born in the USA. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
I want to say that was the first admit- Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Um, yeah, so that kind of introduced me to it. And then when I started driving, I, uh, I opened up. I, I was like, I have to. I need this music. I need this crazy bass music in my car. And I... I don't know if you guys had the recycler. I don't know if that was like everywhere, or if that was just a, out here, but it was this uh, like uh, classified ad paper that had mm-hmm. a ton of like uh, cars for sale. I mean, literally you could, you know, it was, it was the printed version of Craigslist. Back yeah. I was day, thinking right? of like an actual recycler. I'm like, well, where's he going yeah. with this? And then, yeah. Okay, so it, so, so it's, a, it, it was okay. like a, a, you bought it at the liquor store for a buck. And, you know, they had the auto traders, which yep, were like the, yep, the picture yep, ad yep, ones. Yep. And then this was just classifieds. And in the in the back of there, at least out here in California, we have like, I mean, literally, there's probably there's there's an area in Santa Ana where there used to be probably 30 stereo shops in a three mile radius. Hmm. That's how that's how many stereo shops there were. And they would all place ads in the recycler for like, get a two twelves and an amp for ninety nine dollars and get this. I feel like you it's know, still like that. Well, Is it it's still like that. I mean, out here, yeah, but the 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 recycler part of it's gone, which was like the it was fun to see those ads. So, um, the first time I went to buy stereo, I opened up that recycler, I saw the ad, and it was two 12 inch woofers with a box and an amp for ninety nine dollars. And I was like, I have ninety nine dollars, and I like woofers, right? So mm-hmm. this was a great thing, and I went. I think my dad went with me and and bought it and brought it back and hooked it all up and it sounded nothing like what I had experienced <laughs> in that rabbit and it was exactly that point was a huge turning point where I was like I need to figure out why this doesn't sound like that and that right. was kind of the the start of that path and luckily I it's kind of just crazy from a location standpoint but I grew up in a city called Irvine. It was a great place to grow up. And there was one stereo shop in Irvine. It was called Irvine Sound and Service. And the guy who owned its name was Kevin Gribben. And I still talk to Kevin. Um, Kevin had the shop and it was like the high-end shop. And again, we're talking, this is 90, 91. I graduated in 92. so, So right in that kind of time period. And I just started hanging out at Kevin's shop. And he was selling Rockford and linear power. And um, he had this Camaro that sat in the showroom and it had a Sony TV in the dash in 1990, right? Mm. It had power Chrome power 1000s in it. Like it was, it was awesome. And so at the time, Kevin had gone to like RTTI. And so he, Mm -hmm. he really was well above what the average install person was for for anything and it was the first person that showed me that any of that type of stuff was possible and at a very early age so i kind of hung out there and and kevin helped me when i i had my civic in high school gave me a deal on some gear helped me out sold me some you know like scratch and dent stuff and and gave me some advice and i had built a box in woodshop class and I built it for these two series one Rockford 15s that were dirt cheap, you know, but they were going to make big base and I wasn't happy with the output. So in high school, Kevin takes me into the back room and shows me this computer. I mean, computers were nothing right. like they were today. Right, right. And he shows me one of the early versions of term pro. Hmm. And he's like, so here's your drop down menu. Here's your speaker. Here's where you enter the box volume. 
Now look at how, what the, your box looks like. Your box is, you know, these dimensions showed me how to calculate airspace and then showed me, here's what happens if we put a hole in your box and see the, see how this graph looks and showed me the difference and figured out where we were going to cut a hole and went and got some PVC pipe and ported that box. And, and sure as shit, it got significantly louder and played significantly lower. And all of a sudden I, I was like, Hey, here's, here's science that goes with right, right, right. Figuring out that problem between the, the woofer that had all the base in the back of that rabbit hatchback. And then my box that had no base that kind of sparked that whole education and, and that path. And I was, you know, if it wasn't for Kevin kind of like guiding the way early on, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So that's cool. It always kinda, comes down. It always comes down to like those early, early defining moments. You know what I mean? Like you hearing and seeing that sub in the car and just being blown away. Like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, back then everything was all about the demo. Like, you know, that's when everybody had a van or a suburban with a wall of woofers. And it was a really fun time for car audio in the the early nineties. Like it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely an experience. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny that that you say that because I feel like a majority of my clients now, they're kind of that demographic where they had something awesome in the nineties and now they have a great job. They can afford a nice car. They know that they have experienced something in the past that's still far significantly better than somehow, you know, modern cars with all that gap and they want to achieve that. And they're seeing proof of concept of things that we're putting out on YouTube to know, okay, it still looks OEM. My car is not going to get just destroyed and people seem to like it. You know what I mean? Like people's expectations are met. So right. I'm going to take a chance. And they've all, there are a lot of those people are the demographic who had old school gear in the nineties. Uh, a lot of it is reminiscing and, and reminiscent of those days of having the, the two twelves in the trunk and beating down the block and, and shaking windows and to me, it's interesting to see some of my older clients that are in that that same demographic and th- they come in for systems and they're very hesitant to say they want the bass to play really strong or play really low. And we tend to overbuild everything that we do. We tend to try to like shatter expectations. You know, that's my, my goal is to have people truly shocked at how good and how loud the systems that we do play. And a lot of times we give that demo and I, I don't know about you, but I put, we, we at some point coined it the womp knob, but we, we put a base knob in everything that we do. Like I am a huge fan of having quick control over the subwoofer level and not, Hey, let me hit two buttons on a processor controller or get into something on the radio. No, I want it on the fly. So every time I demo a car to a customer, I, I never crank it all the way. And I, I'm always, some of my customers are probably thinking back to this now, if they're listening to this, but I always demo it and I, I pretend like I crank it and it's at like a third volume mm-hmm. and they'll be like, they'll be like, mm, yeah, it's getting it type of type of mentality. Mm-hmm. And then I just pick the right song in the right spot and then I goose it and just watch their reaction. And it's very much like when they were 18 years old and had yeah, one cool. of those cars and it's, it's fun to have, but you don't, it's, it's like having a really fast car. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to put the pedal all the way down, but it's, it's fun every once in a while you're on an on-ramp to, to, to accelerate quickly. Now, let me quickly ask you this. So let's just say modern car, you're doing a DSP, subwoofer volume, 
realistically where that is being set and again every song is recorded differently so every song is going to be very different in how the bass is going to be represented are you telling clients you're you're basically playing it at the moment where you're hearing some sort of resonance in the car because no matter what you're always going to get to the point of where you're going to hear some sort of resonance whether it's in the enclosure whether it's in a panel are oh, you yeah. are, are you demoing that to past the point of resonance just just to show 100%. them how loud it can play yeah 100 okay. like like there's to me there's when it comes to an audio system there's there's a few ways to listen right like in we do a lot of systems where you can shut your eyes in the install bay and really get your your brain and your whole experience tuned into this sound stage and and right. an image and enjoy like the noise floor that isn't there right, right and right. all of that right that's that's kind of one way to listen to music uh-huh. the other way is you know with your eyes open paying attention to driving in a in a somewhat quiet environment and enjoying that the tonality of the system is good right. and the the volume is there and that even with your eyes open and looking at the road and seeing what's going on, you still can tell that there's a sound stage. It's not as, it's not going to be as focused as if you were concentrated and your eyes were shut, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, you know, it's there and you can, you can sense that. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the third version is windows are down and you're going yeah. 75 yeah. on the freeway and you're, and you're jamming. Yeah. And, and to me, the ultimate system does all of those things. Right, well. right, right. That, to me, that's the, that's always the goal, mm-hmm. and the the limitation is just the budget. That's it. Yeah, I was just trying to or the car. So. I was trying more or less to figure out how you are demoing that bass, just or the subwoofer, because I think that's somewhere that I I always stop at the point of resonance. Like I'm, I I I could say I've never really shown a client like okay if you want it to get loud this is how loud this thing will actually play i always demo it to the point of resonance on each individual song yeah you know what i mean so they can so they can key in and lock in on that sound stage where the sub sounding like it's coming from the front versus it hits resonance and then you're locating it to the back. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's usually, it depends on how the bass knob is set up and whether it is a complete cut to zero or not on what right. we can do. But like my favorite systems are when we can get it dialed that the knob is all the way down and the car is musically correct and that the bass is anchored in the front of the car. And mm-hmm. as soon as you start to cheat that knob, you're, you're past yeah. that. Right. I like having um, I like having this this point of return, right? Mm-hmm. So when when we do systems, this is the equation I always give to my customers. You're coming to me with an order for your steak, right? You say I like my steak medium rare, mm-hmm. and it's my job to build you this system or cook this steak until I feel that it's medium rare, right? You're gonna get in there, you're gonna listen to the system, and you might be like. I mean, it's cooked to the right temperature, but I like a little more salt Mm -hmm. or I like a little more pepper Yep. or I need a little steak sauce. So I always tell my customers, right? I tune it with all the, all the controls at zero. Feel free to use the bass and treble controls, right? Like you have that control in your radio. That's your salt and pepper, Mm -hmm. right? And feel free to, to adjust that as you feel it needs to taste. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is accurate and to our house curve and, and 
if you ever put too much salt or too much pepper or you, you ever take zero. off, you just put it right back to zero and start fresh. It's mm -hmm. like you got a fresh piece of meat. And then we joke that the uh, the subwoofer level control is the steak sauce and you only use it when you really need it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I always kind of feel like subliminally it's almost kind of dangerous because you have a lot of people who always think that they can figure out little improvements on their own. And you can see it a lot when like you do uh, say just like a pioneer radio or a Kenwood radio and say everything was set to zero and then they come back and the loudness is on the oh, sound gosh. stage yeah. is on high. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything is just effed with. Yeah, no. And, and, then, and, and then they come in and you sit them down and you're in the car and you're like, you know, why is all this stuff changed? Do you think it sounds better? And then they're like, yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds better. And then you put everything back at zero. And then you're like, oh my God, it sounds like amazing now. Like you got so far away because you got distracted with the idea of you improving it. The problem is, is I feel like a lot of people can perceive improvement based on hearing distortion, right? And I feel like that's what the OEM does well in a lot of factory systems is they have bigger woofers. They essentially a lot of times just have more audible distortion, which is being perceived as louder music almost. Right. right? right. And you even, have, you even have some clients to, to the idea in which when you're playing music for them and you don't have any clipping, you can play like, say, say you have the Moscone set to where like tops out at 35 on the, big DRC say it's at like 33 and it's loud as hell in theory if there's no clipping you're not hearing that distortion so you don't have the idea to want to turn it down from the natural reaction of the years right so yeah. you just want to keep going and keep going and keep going and some people are used to hearing that just like that first part of distortion and then turning it down yeah and and we talk about that a lot with our customers and that the the cue that your brain looks for for loudness is that onset of distortion. That's what mm -hmm. your brain, right? That's how your brain goes, hey, this is loud. And when you don't have that, your your ears are basically your brain's attenuating your sensitivity to it, and you'll get used to it really fast if you don't have that clipping. And that's to me, that's one of the one of the best reasons to justify putting Class A B amps in a car is because when they do clip, they do it elegantly. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of class D amps, they have more power, so you don't drive them to clipping as often. But when you do, they lose their shit like yeah. they go they go nuts. And so that's one of the the huge benefits to to class AB. There's a lot of downsides, but yeah, right. I didn't mean to derail you. I was just very no, curious no. about the explanation of how you demo the sub, because I think there's a lot of a lot of good to that as well, because, again, so, some clients might never speak up and say, hey. How loud does this thing actually get safely? So, I mean, that's that's important as well. So, just trying to learn. So, some stuff. we we have a a car. It's one of my customers who is a doctor, and he he brought me a car. And same thing. Grew up in my era. We we have an awful lot in common, except for that he's a doctor, um, and he likes really clean music. He had really nice systems his whole way through, and the way he explained it to me, this. <laughs> 
it's one of my favorite analogies from a customer was that he he wanted all the detail he wanted a great soundstage he wanted it to sound like what he remembers his car sounding like and you know first to admit like hey i like the the bright sound of the mv courts and you know that's i i remember those systems well and um i like all that and he goes as a doctor i eat pretty healthy but occasionally I still sneak through the McDonald's drive-through for a Big Mac, uh-huh. even though I know it's not good for me. It's not healthy. He goes, "I need that Big Mac in the trunk." Yeah. When I when I want it there, I want yeah. it there. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to use it all the time, but I want to. I want to have the ability to do something. the The funny part is we've had that car for a while. He's actually been tied up with COVID stuff and and locked at a hospital that he can't get out of, basically. Hmm. And uh, I still have his car months later, and he's never even heard it. So one of these days, he'll get to hear it. Maybe maybe I can video that reaction or something. Yeah, shout out to him. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely holding it down. All right. So it's like 2000, or not 2000, 1991. Oh, so I'm, I'm in 92. high school. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's 91-ish, 92. I'm, I'm graduating. I got my my civic with it, it's kind of crazy i was nowhere near as fast as your turbo eclipse but i had my honda civic that had some headers and a carb and a little bit of work done and it had this gigantic wall in the back with two 15s ported and we would pull it out to go racing and then throw it back in so that we could beat down the block all week and um had had a lot of fun learned a lot with that car and learned a lot from kevin and the, the guys at Irvine sound and Basically, I got close to graduating high school and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wasn't I wasn't into being a student. I didn't necessarily see myself as wanting or not wanting to go to college. I just knew that unless I knew where I wanted to end up, I didn't want to just go to college to go to college. Mm-hmm. And if I had a goal in mind or as soon as I knew what that was, I'll figure it out and I'll go. So I went to Kevin at Irvine Sound and Service and I said, Hey, I'm about to graduate. Can I have a job? And he basically said, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) He just wasn't big enough to take on somebody else. And, and at the time, and basically what he told me is he goes, look, you've helped out. I'll write you a hell of a recommendation letter, but why don't you go to someplace like circuit city and learn to take cars apart with their insurance policy? Is this, is it? Yeah. Is this when you started with the road shop? Yeah. So, so literally like my, my parents, when we moved back from the beautiful town of Kirkland, Washington, right. We, <laughs> they bought a house in Irvine. A shout out to and, Kirkland folks. Sh- awesome shout out to, to my homies in Kirkland from yeah. those three months I lived there when I was yeah. three and a half. Good people in Kirkland. Yeah. Good people. In Kirkland. And, uh, so my parents had told me like that my sister and I both like, we will keep you in the same school district the entire time, uh, you're in school. But, you know, we'll probably leave this area when uh, when you graduate. And I, I have a, a pretty cool group of friends that literally we started at our elementary school the day it opened, like a brand new school. Mm-hmm. And we went we were the first group to go all the way through and graduate from the elementary school and then went to to uh, junior high together and then went to high school together and so there's like there's this hmm. kind of core group of friends that every once in a while every every five or ten years we all get together and yeah it's a it's a good time good people and um so literally one day in high school i come home and there's a fort sale sign on the front yard and i'm like oh they were not bullshitting <laughs> like they were serious 
And so, uh, so I had, I was forced to, you know, they are like, Hey, we, you know, there's a room for you in the new house if you really want it. And it's like, I just graduated high school. I don't want to move 45 minutes inland and away from the beach and away from my friends. And that time when you're graduating high school, like your friends are everything. And so I moved out with a couple friends and Kevin wrote me that referral letter and, mm-hmm. and I went on over to Circuit City and Huntington Beach and got myself a job. Definitely the right move. I, it was definitely a good experience. Their training program was was good. You know, they they sit you down in your first day. Like it's like, oh, well, you need to study all this stuff. I don't know if you remember like studying yeah, and then having yeah. to take their test. Yep. And it was one of those things to where like I was into it. I, I just sat there. I read everything and took the test the first day. And I was working on a car that afternoon. And that's supposed to be a couple day process. And I'm just like, let me add it. Let's do this. I was so excited to like. I'm actually going to do this. And I was, I've always been super passionate about cars and about audio. And that was kind of how it started. That's cool. So yeah. how long after circuit city until you meet Stevie Nicks? Cause I just, oh, I, I want to, I want to get to that part of it. For you. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of important stuff. So, okay. um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. So it, as we go through kind of my story, I've had a lot of friends and coworkers through, through this path we're going to take talking about all of this. And I don't know what the the common thing was between all of us, but everybody, not, not everybody, there are a good number of people that I cross paths with that I believe we are collectively together. Everybody gets to share in my success and I, I like to share in theirs a little. And mm-hmm. it's because they were, they're people that I collaborated with, people that I knew and, and, you know, maybe Maybe they carry a little me with them. Maybe I carry a little of them with me. But one of the the first notable people, notable now, not necessarily okay. notable then, was when I worked at the road shop in uh, in Laguna Hills at Circuit City. Uh, I, I worked with a guy named Mike, and then all of a sudden there was a new guy. And and you know, there's a little bit of a hazing process to the new installer at Circuit City every time somebody comes. Definitely in this. Yeah. So the, the, the F and G's name is also Mike. So now we have two mics. And so I dubbed this Mike, Mike, the rookie, right? Like okay. it was jerky boys times. It's a little bit before your days, but the, the old prank phone call shows and, and there was a character on there that, that, that was called Mike, the rookie. So we referred to this other Mike as Mike, the rookie. I already know where this is going. Go ahead. So, so Mike, the rookie turns out to take a path from, from that, uh, we, we spent some time together playing mini trucks back then. I had a Toyota truck. He had a Toyota truck and he went on to, you know, do some stuff, become the editor of mini truck magazine and hot boat magazine. And now he's on a little show called roadkill and Finnegan's garage. And that's Mike Finnegan started out hmm. back in the day at the circuit city road shop. And that's cool. Mr. And, uh, definitely, a definitely a fun one, but that was kind of the, the, the first person on my path that, that I will say became successful. And mm-hmm. by no means did I have anything to do with him becoming successful, but I, uh, I share in it anyways, because I like Mike, he's a good dude. So, so I'm working at circuit city and another guy that worked with me at circuit city, uh, his name's Scott Fletcher. He left and went to work for an Allen Ed's. And I don't know how familiar you are with Allen Ed's They're They're a chain out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they've, you know, changed hands it's kind of mixed up a little bit, but the, this store in Laguna Hills was an Allen Ed's. And 
Buddy Scott had gone over to work there and they did a little bit higher end stuff, had cooler product than what we were using at Circuit City. And I was like, okay, uh, they needed somebody. And I was like, okay, I'll come over there. And that was as I was starting to get kind of more into the custom stuff. I was into the custom truck scene kind of around that time. I met a guy named Pat Nickel who owned a place called Ballistic Motorsports. And he had a really famous mini truck that was on the cover of mini truck. And then I want to say it was probably the first body dropped mini truck on the cover of mini truck. And then he had a shop right up the street. Um, and he was also, maybe at some point we can have him on. He's a, he's a really cool dude, but he also worked at a stereo shop and he'd kind of, his, his dad had built custom cars and kind of turned them onto that stuff. An amazing fabricator. He, uh, he built fire engines now crazy like like crazy billet parts for fire engines and stuff but um think about all the think about all the other avenues that are affiliated with what we do that other people do like you just oh, said yeah. building fire engines yeah yeah you know like insane. actual important stuff not, yeah. not like what yeah. we do um so yeah so so pat was working i can't remember the name of the stereo shop but pat worked at this high-end stereo shop building like kind of crazy stuff and um and now i just sparked memories of other stuff from Irvine sound i yeah. should have told you but we'll get there someday um so pat had opened the suspension shop and was i think doing stereo stuff during the day and the suspension stuff at night and i think he was a big inspiration in mike's kind of career and got you know as we were kind of into that mini trucking thing so i left went to work for this allen eds which they, somehow they lost their franchise and became jay and howard's and um uh, worked there that's for a, that's a long way from Allen Ed's. It really is, but it was the two guys. That, there were two shops that were both Allen Ed's. They both lost their franchise. Uh, I can't remember. I want to say that one of them was married to the other one's sister. Or some I don't know. Some some weird connection there. But uh, you know, worked there for a few years. Learned a little bit more. Kept trying to like push and, and experiment, and was working on friends' cars and just trying to build bigger and bigger, crazier stuff. And then there was a shop that opened up in town and they were, you know, a little bit further away. They're actually in Irvine at the time that I was in uh, Lake forest. And these were like, it was kind of the onset of the high end stack them high, watch them fly guy. So like that recycler ad that we were talking right. about, like yeah. most of the stuff that was in that when I was, you know, f you know, 89, 90 was all the garbage brands. It was pyramid and like, you know, I think that first amp I bought was a turbo 150 plus 150, right? Like it, just no name stuff. And it sounds like it'll perform well. Right. right. <laughs> so uh, this shop called Gold Star Audio was kind of the original one that took that mentality, but did it with high end product. They were they were whoring out PPI and Rockford and mm -hmm. like everything they could get their hands on. And they had a nice facility and they were advertising. They had lots of customers and I was working at this other shop and occasionally we'd go pick up equipment from them. You know, we were out of stock or something. They had, <laughs> if we had one of something, usually they would have 10 usually like mm -hmm. it was just, it was seriously stacked floor to ceiling. And so every time I'd go in there, they would be like, you, you want to come work here? You want to come work here? And then one day it just kind of was like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you like, work here now. <laughs> yeah, and so I Just went stay. to work there. So, so I'm going to take a sip real quick. Sorry, you won't put the shirt on right now and <laughs> right, sign this right. paper. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to go back. You don't have to yeah. go back. So, uh, owner's name uh, Mike Mayer and uh, his son Steve Mayer, 
and good people and totally instrumental in, in kind of, you know, giving me an avenue and an outlet for, for wanting to, you know, build custom stuff. And so I started there and I can't remember which one of us started first, but within like a week of each other starting, I worked with this guy, another guy named Mike. And, um, this, this Mike had kind of grown up on the other side of town and learned from a whole different group of people, how to do everything from wiring and fabrication. And I had learned from some other people on the way and, and staring at magazines and they put us together and we basically did fab work and we had guys that would run wires and install speakers and do the basic stuff. And we spent most of our days, you know, building panels and paneling out trunks and, and upholstering stuff and, you know, kind of building these, you know, nothing like what we do today, but for back then, you know, there's a lot of carpet and occasional vinyl trunk, but you know, the, the higher end side of things. So that, that Mike is Mike Vu. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I knew you were going to get there assume, at some point. Yeah. I, I'm just going to assume that you guys know who that is, but Mike, uh, Mike went on to work for Alan Ed's actually building show cars in house. And then when Chris Yotto left Alpine, he took over Chris Yotto's job there. When he left, he left Alpine. He opened a place called MV Designs, who did a lot of stuff with Scion. Um, and then when he he ended up closing that up and going to work for a new electric car company called Faraday Future, which I think they're struggling now. But and then he left Faraday, and now he works at the electric truck company uh, Riven. And uh, hmm. they're getting ready to launch their truck. And that's where he is now living in Detroit. So that's a cool kind of company. A, yeah. Yeah. They, in a really cool truck. Like, yeah. They make some cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Mike and I started working together and it was really weird that like in this, I would say probably like a four week time frame, we built, you know, we were paneling out a trunk every day or two and, and doing these systems. And we just really quickly said like, okay everything we do, we do different. Your way is better to do this. My way is better to do that. Your way is better to do this. Mine's better than that. In in a super short period of time, I feel like we both just got night and day better. You both like adapted it, to each other. Yeah. And we just, we took everything that we knew and we put it together. And then, um, yeah, we grew just like crazy during that time period. And, you know, I, I want to say I worked at worked there for a couple of years and then one of the guys that I worked with, his name is Jamie Rawlings, who was an ex, uh, ex acoustic employee. And I think he had worked at Macintosh when they did the car audio stuff. And he had worked at Gold Star for kind of a short period of time, but he went up and ran a shop in Beverly Hills that was like super famous back in the day. It's called Paris Audio. It was started by a guy named Bill Yaley. And that kind of back in the day, the SoCal shops were Paris Audio for the kind of LA crowd and the orange County crowd was uh speaker works. And mm-hmm. that those were kind of the two big shops. And Bill had sold the, the shop to a guy that owns some other shops out here in California. And Jamie went to work there and needed an installer. And he called me and I basically, I'm like, I don't want to drive an hour plus each way to go to Beverly Hills. I'm like, I'd need this ridiculous amount of money. And he's like, give me a couple minutes. And he calls me back. He's like, okay, come on up. And I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess I have a new job. And so I went to work at the shop in Beverly Hills and it was, it was really weird for me because it was the first time where I like consistently was working on higher end cars. I had done, you know, Ferraris and Porsches and a, a few here and there type of thing up until that point. 
but I get to the shop in Beverly Hills and it's like the cheapest car we work on is like a five-year-old Porsche is like mm-hmm. the bottom of the barrel. And it's like, oh, so it, you kind of get thrown into that fire and you just figure it out and go. And it, it was kind of an interesting time. That was right as the 996 and the Boxster were coming out and the, the sound systems in there were just absolutely terrible. And <laughs> the, yeah. the base model cars didn't have amplifiers. And like, I mean, it was, it was really bad. So we kind of put this package system together and, and we were doing a ton of that stuff and they had, uh, a hell of a client list. So they, they actually moved locations and there's, there's a lot of stories up there. I, I would have to say that my favorite story, it's kind of a two part story, but I worked with a guy up there who very private, well, his name is Dan. We'll just call him Dan. <laughs> That's enough. Um, <laughs> Dan, Dan, yeah, private Dan, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan. Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <going right> there. <laughs> so, so Dan had worked at another shop up in the LA area and he comes in to interview. And I remember looking at his car and like, he can barely fit his legs into his car because he has these, it, it almost looks like he just, Lieutenant Dan doesn't have legs. Right? See, well, this this Dan did. So he can barely get his legs in the car. There's this huge set of just like raw ass wood enclosures in the front of the car. Like it looks like somebody like took unfinished home speakers and just put them in the front of the car. And I'm like, my curiosity. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, this dude's not going to fly around here. Like this, like this is Beverly Hills. These are like fancy ass cars. Like, he has this little Nissan and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is not a good fit. Right. Well, it turns out that Dan and Dan and I became good friends and I, I have the utmost respect for Dan. And after the podcast, I'll explain a little more about Dan to you. But, cheers to Dan. Um, yeah. Cheers to Dan. Cheers to Dan. Who's in Florida right now. Um, Hopefully he's not in Orlando. Yeah. Um, we get to do some, some fun stuff up there. I get to meet all sorts of celebrities. Name one real quick. I, I, you said I, all the, sorts. Name one. Hurry. The go. visual Pamela Anderson. So okay, <laughs> like, and, and the reason that comes to mind is because she used to come and park her car right in the alley behind and right where Dan's car was the first time I saw it. So see, female. me saying that just but, instantly made this more interesting. Yeah. Did she have the go. barbed wire on her arm yet? No. I don't even remember. I just remember she she did, is this she, Baywatch P- Pamela Anderson or she, beforehand? She definitely uh, looks different when she's not all dolled up. Okay. So I hope she's apologies, <laughs> apologies to Pam Anderson yeah. and the great residents of Kirkland. Yeah. So um, we had, we had moved shops actually right into the heart of Beverly Hills, like, like deeper into the center. And the guy that runs the shop, Jamie tells me that he has this famous, famous music producer coming in and he wants to do a system. And apparently Bill had done systems for him multiple times in the past. And he's got this Bentley that he wants to do this system in. And I'm like, okay. So the guy walks in, don't recognize him, have no idea. He's, he deals with Jamie, gets the system all laid out and he leaves. We have the car, we're doing the install. And then like, that was kind of like the early days of search engines and all that kind of stuff. And internet we're talking, this is like Mm -hmm. 90, it's gotta be seven, eight ish. Okay. And, um, so I look him up and I realize who it is and it's Rick Rubin, who was Ooh. the guy that started Jeff Jam Records with Russell Simmons. He found the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and LL Cool J and like half of the people that I grew up listening to, like um, a That's really famous. Yeah, it's just absolutely insane. Right. And it's like 
we're getting to do Macintosh amps and a Macintosh head unit. And, and, Mm -hmm. and Rick had done his research and was like, this is what I wanted. We actually did a Focal three-way in the front of the car, the whole nine. I was, it was like, I have some pictures of it. Maybe we'll use that for, we'll use the trunk. I have a a really bad picture of the trunk of uh, Rick's Bentley with the Macintosh amps in it. Um, So we do Rick's car and I listen to it and, and, Danny's trying to tune it. I want to say, I can't remember what we had for EQ in there. I, w- I want to say that we might've had some Zapco EQs in there. I'm listening to it. And at that point in time, it is the best sounding car I have ever built. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm just, I'm just blown away. Like this is, this is awesome. He's going to be so impressed and blah, blah, blah. And Rick comes in and the, the whole reason he wanted that car done and, and he gets systems in those cars was to have as a reference from what we had learned from his assistant and stuff. They're very big on playing music on all sorts of playback devices to make sure that it sounds good on a crappy ghetto blaster or mm-hmm. on a car radio or and that kind of stuff. And which and I will say, I, I will say the really cool thing about a reference system in the car is I feel like more times than not, that's where you're listening to music. Right. It's where you have some time. Like, it, I feel like life is so busy that like, even on my, well, you have a stupid three minute commute to work and I'm jealous, yeah. but you know, I've got a 10 to 20 minute drive and it's the only time I can listen to music. Really, But how often are you sitting at home? I mean, again, everyone's different. I'm sure like if a lot of people had prioritized home audio systems, they would use it more often. But how often are you listening to music anywhere but the car? Right. Like I have a nice, I have what I would call a, a very nice home system. It's not crazy expensive or anything, but I have a very nice set of towers and I have a good quality receiver with good power and it's a very enjoyable system to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I turn it on four to six times a year. Right. That's my point. Yep, exactly. And I feel like if you're, if you're a producer, you should spend time listening in a really good car. I'll leave it at that. Well, and, and, and I will tell you this, this we're getting to the, what I would say, one of the biggest changing moments in my audio career is coming up here in a second when we get to it. And, and my, my world changed because of it. So, so Rick comes in, gets in the car and he puts a CD in and he listens for a couple of like maybe 15, 20 seconds of something that they just recorded in the studio goes to the next track and he looks at me and he says i don't know what it is but it's wrong Ooh. and i'm just like i i just felt like you know you asked a girl to dance and she yeah. said uh no especially because you were so no. jazzed before yeah before you was, sat in it oh my gosh you're like this so, is sick <laughs> yeah so i turn to lieutenant dan right like dan we're all sitting there and it's like what's what's wrong and it was the first time that um, you were humble. We, well, no, I mean, I was I again, I had never been asked to execute on that level before. Right. Like that was I, I hadn't done a ton of like sound quality stuff. I I knew Dan knew his stuff and and um, we would build good sounding systems, but Mm -hmm. who knows that they were like super accurate. You know, we, we didn't have an RTA. We didn't, it's not like things are today. Right. 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 And, and so, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on with the car and it basically, you know, looking back now, it's like the most obvious, 
I would never do what we did in that car, right? And that's that we had a three-way with no delays, and it's a phase issue. When you when you have a guy that sits in a recording studio, of course, listening near field Mm -hmm. to a nice set of studio monitors where he sits dead center, and you put him off center in a car, and you have sound coming from six locations, it's never going to do what his studio does. Right, and so he ends up bringing another car that he had done that Bill had done five years previously. And he's like, I want you to hear this to, to know that this is, this is acceptable. This isn't, this isn't amazing. I was trying to do amazing. Remember Rick had picked the equipment out. It wasn't, it wasn't right. us. Right. He had done his research and that's what he wanted. And the components will, on their own are good components. It's just the, the install locations and the, the of tunability course. of it. At yeah. The, the environment of the car. Right. Was not conducive to what it wanted to do. And so I look at this car and it's literally a pair of six and a half coaxes in the doors in the bottom of this Bentley. And that's in an amp. And that's it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, yeah, he's like, so this is he gives us the studio monitors that he listens to. They're these Genelac monitors. And we listen to them. We're like, yeah, that does sound night and day better than what what your car sounds like. Right. (laughs) At some point in life, I I want to reach out to Rick and be like, can I do a system for you now and yeah. uh, redeem myself, right? So that leads us to where at, at that point, I'm my interest is totally peaked in higher level sound. And I'm not talking building good sounding cars. I'm talking building cars that- For that, record producers. Yeah. So the next phone call we get is from Stevie Nicks. From okay. Fleetwood Mac, right? Yep. This is this is the story. It's you a good to story, yeah. Right. So Dan and I had had lots of talks about Rick's car, and Dan had been kind of pursuing this, like what he had been doing in his kick panels in in that car that he drove every day was high end home speakers mm-hmm. on axis in the car, and the the theory behind it is is it's it's pretty straightforward. Most speakers. If you take a frequency response, play relatively flat, right? If mm-hmm. you take the environment out of the picture and you point it at a microphone, most speakers play relatively flat in the bandwidth you need them to play. Correct. And the other issue in a car is that you sit to one side. So the further you can get the speakers away from you, more equalize the path length, the, the better the soundstage is going to be. And then the other side of it is that most, I say most good car speakers let's say i like to kind of say that the 800 ish price point on car speakers and down is the turning point i completely agree anything from 800 and down is a at, at a retail price point is a speaker set that somebody's designing to sound as good as they can for the price point correct in the constraints that they have and those constraints mm-hmm. are usually that they need the tweeter to fit in as many locations as possible Right. And they need the woofer to play in any enclosure volume as opposed to a home speaker that's that's designed to play in either a ported or a sealed enclosure and, and rely on this. And again, this is all stuff that I was learning back then. And, and right. Right. And Dan imparted this wisdom to me. It's not like I came up with this all on my own. But, you know, you you take these car woofers and they're stiff because they have to warranty them and they don't know what enclosure you're going to put them in. It's mm-hmm. not like you would take an eight inch woofer and put it in a six cubic foot enclosure yet that that's the math that you're doing in some of these scenarios so they have to build these super stiff suspensions and then the speaker doesn't react as quickly as it would if it had a looser suspension 
And so those are all the factors. Uh, and so if we can put it in an enclosure, move it as far away, put it on axis. Wait a second. We're in a recording studio. That's mm-hmm. the goal, right? Right. I get this kind of mindset that like as much as I thought Dan was crazy the day he rolled up with that car, I realized how genius he is at the same time. Right. And I'm like, okay, so I've been practicing fabrication for whatever it is now at this point, seven, eight years. We just need to find a person to let us try to mix what he and I do together. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the next phone call is Stevie Nicks. And she says, hey, um, I don't drive that much, but I'm getting a new car and I'll probably be in the passenger seat most of the time. It's a new Lincoln Navigator. It's just coming out. And um, I really want to do a nice stereo system. And she was actually referred from one of our other clients that, that knew her. And she's like, so I was thinking, you know, like we just put nice speakers in it and maybe change the radio and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I would go one of two routes. I'm like, I would either add a subwoofer and upgrade the speakers in the front and, and the radio and just kind of call it a day. Or if you really want to get into it, what I would suggest is, let me cut the floor out of the front of your brand new truck you've never seen and sink a set of recording studio monitors <laughs> into it. And um, she's like, oh, well, how much do you think that would cost? And I, I kind of gave her a ballpark. I, I want to say that it was like, we either need five grand or we need 20 grand, but I wouldn't go. And she's like, well, what, what about in between? I'm like, there is no in between. You either just got to go for it or you do this. And um, she's like, well, let me think about it. And like, I'm like, oh my gosh, A, I just had a phone conversation with Stevie Nicks and two, <laughs> oh my gosh, I hope she goes for it. I hope she goes for it. I hope she goes for it. And it turns out she went for it. And so Dan and I start planning and, and I'm like, well, what speakers do you want to use? And he's like, well, I found this company called North Creek Music Systems, right? I don't even think they're in business anymore, but North Creek back in the day used shash. <laughs> I think they retired. So North Creek was one of those guys that they would, um, they would take like the B and O towers and, and build higher end Mm -hmm. crossovers for them to improve the sound. Right. So they had a kit to do a scan speak seven with a scan speak tweeter. So this is back in, I want to say nine, whenever the navigator came out. So I think it's probably 97 or 98. And like, I'd never heard of scan speak before. And so their big thing was that they would, they ordered a lot of drivers from scan and then they would hand match them in pairs. Right. And then they had crossover networks. Mm -hmm. So somewhere I have pictures of these, they would give you pegboard to like, you know, these are home audio guys that they don't care too much about what it looks like on the inside of a home audio enclosure, but it's, it's pegboard and you have to hand solder these capacitors that are the size of my drink glass right like they're just the crossover components cost more than the drivers that's how expensive it was and uh we basically cut the floorboards out of this navigator and made trays and skid plates and did zapco amps the rear fill was like a set of mb court uh with the tweeter that hung over on axis in the back seat and then Mm -hmm. the um the sevens and tweeter in the floor and yeah. So so the best part of the story, right, is that uh, she's coming up. We haven't met her in person yet. The car came on a flatbed. She's coming to pick it up and do the mm-hmm. final tuning with us. And we've got it. Oh. So I have you know, so many questions it, in our mind, it, you know, in your brain, it's it's 
70s Stevie Nicks coming in and then she comes hobbling in with a cane and you know mm-hmm. but she's got like the mystical witchy dress on and like you're like okay the vibes there whatever and um I it was such a big deal I brought my wife up with me and like everybody in the shop is there like it's a, it's a big deal right and I, I I'm trying to remember who all was in the car I think it was her me Danny and probably Saul was probably in the car and so we're we're listening to it and she she's like it's she goes it sounds really good but let I don't me know stop if it has you there bass okay. what's the first song she wants to hear i i don't remember how do you not remember that i it was little I, lies I, wasn't it <laughs> i don't i can't remember what we were playing but but her comment was that she wasn't sure if it had enough bass and she thought we might want to boost the bass and i'm like i think that it's the tracks we're listening to why don't we pick something that has a little more bass? So she goes through she my CD case. Yeah, she wanted she wanted the Sony bass boost button off her wall, man. No. So she goes through my CD case. Okay. And grabs a CD. Oh, what'd she grab? And puts it in. What was it? LL Cool J doing it and doing it and doing it well. And I am about shitting myself. That I am sitting in a car with Stevie Nicks listening to LL Cool J, right? And the first bass note hits and she goes, oh, it's got plenty of bass. That is awesome. And I am totally redeemed for the Rick Rubin experience, right? Like everything we wanted to accomplish, we accomplished. The car sounded amazing. Like it did everything well. And it was the proof of that concept that that doing real speakers in the right location and the right enclosure is everything and not scattering speakers wow. in a bunch of locations across the car and trying to correct for it. Yeah. So good. I bet I got a lot. I, stories I, I bet at that, but I bet there was some point when everyone was listening to you building up to that part of the story, everyone's like rummaging through their head, trying to think of what she put on. Spanish Harlem. Everyone was off. Every, yeah, there was there was no was way you could have guessed that. And if you got no it, shout out to you. Oh gosh, can I throw Hello, somebody else under the bus the while bus. we're doing this? Oh my gosh, I hope it doesn't back to him. Not that it would, but so a lot of <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for telling celebrity stories. So one of our celebrity clients was Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Right? He's a dick, <laughs> isn't he? He's gotta be a oh dick. Oh my god, he's such oh a god. dick. So he drops the car off because his remember the Sony. Are you too old to remember CD changers? I don't even no, know. Of or too young remember to remember CD changers. Do you remember Sony ten disc CD changers yes. and they'd always jam because yes. people put eleven discs yes. in them? So, so Meatloaf brings his Mercedes in because the CD changers jammed and I get it unjammed right, and I pull the first CD out that's jammed and guess what it is? No Stevie Nicks. No or LL Cool J. No LL Cool worse. J. It's a fucking Meatloaf CD. Then I pull oh, out the no. next CD just to check. Guess what that is? And the next CD. Meatloaf. It's all meatloaf. It's all, it's all CDs. So then the best part mm. about this, my wife and I still joke about this all the time. So I have a phone number to call to let him know that his CD changer is fixed. And a lady answers the phone. I have a, no idea, girlfriend, wife, daughter, what, what his situation is or was. But I'm like, um, and I don't know how you refer to Mr. Meatloaf, right? So I'm like... Hi, this is Gary from Paris Audio. I just wanted to let you guys know the Mercedes was all ready. And you can hear the phone kind of go away. And all I hear is, I'm going to get away from the microphone while I do this. 
Meat phones for you. <laughs> so I, I guess you refer to him as Meat. Uh, Mr. Meat. Mr. Meat. Mr. Or Mr. Loaf. He just doesn't seem like a nice I, you know, person. I don't. I, I never met the man. Had a brief conversation. With I remember him. I I I saw a season of Celebrity Apprentice when he was oh, on yeah. there with Donald Trump, and he just. I don't know. He it seemed like he had all sorts of issues. Yeah, I kind of remember that now. So, yeah. so I have a couple of good stories. We may have to stop this podcast at just getting to this point and continue it. Yeah, another, you've done another so time, much but, that you deserve two episodes. Uh, yay. Thank you. Because um, we haven't, so, we're not even in Alpine yet. Oh, we're not. Yeah, we haven't even. We're we're a couple jobs away from Alpine. In the in the first year or so that I worked at at Paris, this is. This actually predates the Rick Rubin and the Stevie Nicks story. Gary Busey comes in. Oh my God. You're just, old... you're one after another. And then no, this... is this before motorcycle accident, Gary Busey? No, no, no. This is, this post. is post. This is okay. bad. This is bad shit. Crazy. <laughs> most awesome dude in the world. This, story, this, right? isn't, this isn't rocket from rookie of the year. Oh God. Uh, Gary Busey has trouble getting his cell phone to work a few times more than more than one issue right so he had a problem with his car kit i think you know back in the day when everybody had the nokia with the snap-on face mm -hmm. and we'd put the car kit and everything back then and um so i drive his mercedes the bay was was at the old location was separate from the retail store so i drive it down and ashtray is always full of cigar ashes this blue like i want to say it's probably like a five whatever the big five series but like probably like even eight or ten years old at that point maybe five years old i don't know and um get it all fixed up bring it back down to the retail shop and i walk in and there's a the manager's desk points looking out the front door and i walk in and i hadn't seen him before right and it's gary Busey sitting at the manager's desk right and he's hollering to people walking by on the street hey come in here by radio whatever blah blah so some dude comes walking in and somebody going door to door selling stuff. Right. And he walks in and he recognizes Gary Busey, but doesn't know who it is. Right. He knows he recognizes. <laughs> I feel like that's right? most people. <laughs> and he's like, you're, you're, you're that guy. And he's like, you know, I am, you know, like, who am I? Who am I? Like trying to get like, dude doesn't know. Right. So that's, that's the first time I meet Gary Busey. After we moved to the other location on Robertson, which is where the, Rick Rubin and, and the Stevie Nicks story happened. He he comes in a few times and they, the guys I work with proceed to tell him that I'm a big fan of the movie Big Wednesday, which I doubt you've ever seen. Never it seen a, it. Yeah. 100% it was, never seen it. It was like a, a probably a late 70s, early 80s movie about a group of guys that grew up together surfing every day and kind of how life in the Vietnam War took them up. I guess it's late seven. It's it's seven. Yeah, seventies or eighties movie. And um, the war happens. It, life happens, and they all meet up back on this this day they call Big Wednesday when this mm -hmm. huge surf comes. And Gary Busey's one of the main characters in it. So they they kind of prep him that I'm a I'm a big fan of the movie and of his and whatever. And I'm in the bay, and he literally just comes in and grabs me. And starts acting out one of the scenes of the movie with me, like screaming what? at me. Yeah, in the bay <laughs> and like just doing just doing lines. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely insane. And that's not the best Gary Busey story. How's that I not have. the best the best story? 
So the best story is he pulls up again. He says, hey, there's a case in the trunk. Grab it and meet me in the showroom. What? Right? Wait, at this point, no have one... you done work for Gary Busey? Or is, We've just is he fixed just... his cell phone. We've just retaught him how to use his okay. cell phone a few times. So right? he's the crazy client that just kind of like hangs around the shop. He, I believe this was a specific trip for this. Okay. <laughs> and he says, there's a case in the trunk. Bring it into the showroom. So I grab it and it's a guitar case. And I bring it to him. He sits down. He starts unbuttoning, opening the case. I call my dad because my dad's a huge Gary Busey fan. And I'm like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Just keep the phone silent and listen. I put it on speakerphone. And Gary Busey pulls out a guitar and he says, when I did the Buddy Holly story, Mm -hmm. Buddy's mom gave me his guitar. This is it. What? And he sat in the showroom. He has Buddy Holly's guitar. One of Buddy Holly's guitars. And he sat in the showroom playing, like he learned every Buddy Holly song for the movie. And he just sat there playing it. And I got my dad on speakerphone. That's like absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. I'm going to say that Trump's the Stevie Nicks story. I don't know how you've never told me that story before. <laughs> I got an Anthony Kiedis story, too. So, like from up there. so let's recap. Gary Busey, <laughs> for, for no reason affiliated to installing anything in his car. Just stopped by <laughs> to play a show for me one day. With Buddy. Because he knew I was a on, fan. With Buddy Holly's guitar. With Buddy Holly's guitar in the trunk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's absolutely like. And, and here's the hard part. At whatever I was at the time, 24 probably, managing expectations of life when that's your. That's my life at 24. Right. But I would. Right. Like. I'll say that's very on par for Gary Busey. <laughs> To just yeah, like stop no. in a random place, yelling at people to tell them to come into a, a shop and spend money, yeah, and then pull out a box with a guitar that's Buddy Holly's, ah. and then play music. We damn near need an episode just from the Paris Audio days. You want to know the craziest story from from? Oh, Paris. it's not better than Gary Busey. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> okay, well, you obviously have to tell it now. So. so Another Paris Audio customer, William Shatner. Ooh. Okay. Same thing. Phone issue. God, okay. all these old people with their phone. I'm, I'm telling you. His wife, before she passed away, sitting in the passenger seat, door open at the curb. I'm leaning into the car, and a bird shits on me in front of Shatner. <laughs> Literally on. shits on my shoulder. And I'm like... I'll be right back. That's almost poetic because oh, like it, you're in front of Shatner. You just got chat on. I get chat on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was memorable. Wasn't better than the Gary Busey story though. And I'm no, sure no, everyone no, listening no. will agree. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Funny, but it, Another it's time. not on par. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, Anthony Kiedis. So, so we had a, we had a, a group of people that basically from Rick Rubin's kind of group and clan, obviously Mm -hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers falls into that. So that we would get cars for (laughs) Rick called up one time and he's like, "Uh, Hey, you guys do a lot of stereos in those Porsches. Right. And we're like, yeah, we do. Did you get a Porsche? He's like, no, no, no. I got Chris's Porsche here and his birthday is coming up. And before he comes back over here, uh, I want to send him your Porsche to do a stereo. Chris who? 
Uh, Chris Rock oh. <laughs> apparently keeps his Porsche at Rick's house when he's out here on the West Coast. Must be nice, right? I'm like, yeah. So that's a little present amongst friends. Just here, put a system in the dude's Porsche. Uh, another favorite one was uh, Anthony Kiedis. So, so Anthony Kiedis has this 69 Camaro convertible. And I guess it had a system in it. And they went on tour and he put the car in like a storage lot. And somebody ripped all the gear out of it. So the car comes to us on a flatbed. And it's like dirty, like sitting outside with the top down full of leaves, just dirty, dirty, chalky black primer. And so he actually comes in. um, We're kind of going over what we're going to do. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. And I'm like, you know, we got a body shop across the street. If you want to like get it painted and stuff while it's here, the interior done. And he looks at it. He looks at me and he goes, "Eh, it's kind of stealthy this way. I like it. (laughs) I'm like, okay, no problem. As you wish, stereo only. Mm. That's that's the really good ones. But yeah, I got to meet a lot of a lot of people up there and do some fun stuff. And and it was really my first kind of. I feel like th- ex- I feel like this was your first introduction into trying to deliver on high expectations. Yeah, yeah, it really was, and it was trial by fire, and it was. Um, it was pretty high expectations and it was in nicer vehicles. And I mean, it was that time period that really kind of shaped. I feel like, know, I, feel, I feel like this that. is where confidence gets built because if somebody has oh, yeah. high expectations and you can deliver on that, then you're just like, all right, I'm doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like, uh, I got this, you know, I, I can figure this out. And then, um, do we want to, do we want to cap it there? And no, and- let's keep going. Keep, keep going. So, okay. So at that same time, that's about the time my wife and I started dating and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And again, I got to kind of stitch all these memories back together. Right, so but, are you with your wife now at this time? Oh yeah. You said Stevie Nicks, you brought her there. Yeah. 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 When Yeah, we were, this is when we were still dating. Yeah. So yeah, were pretty, you dating in the early days? Like when you were telling the stories from the early nineties or no, no, no. We um we had a mutual friend that introduced us and yeah I want to say we started dating around that time kind of ninety seven ninety eight ish okay right in there yeah and um so I started um I'm trying to think how I got I don't know I I must have gotten fed up at Paris or something or sick of the drive you know it it wears on you when you spend three <laughs> hours Gary Busey kept coming in and you had to no no else. that's the that's the awesome part that's the awesome part so. I don't know how I met uh, Chris, my old, my old, old partner, Chris, and uh, a guy named Kenny Williams, who Kenny, he's kind of bounced around, but a, a few years ago, he was basically like shop manager at West Coast Customs these days, you know, somebody else that I crossed paths with that mm-hmm. went on to do kind of stuff. He was at sailing for a while, and he was a, a sound quality competitor. Um, had a, like, like Steve Brown had an accurate legend that he competed with and he was doing some, some pretty advanced fiberglass work and putting kick panels in a lot of cars and, and around that time. And somehow Chris and Kenny and I, like I, I started kind of hanging out over there and, and learning what Kenny had to know and, and, and was doing and kind of split some time, I think between there and Paris around that time. And and got to do some fun cars. And that's when Kenny had gotten the call to build Dan Murphy from Murph Co. Um, had an Impala that Kicker was going to use for CES. And so 
I had gone back and helped out at Gold Star a couple of times on a couple of big projects kind of while I was still up in L.A. and and doing that stuff and actually got my first taste of a car that was going to CES that I built was uh, with Kenwood and a guy named Sean Williams. It was Street Concepts that was having Gold Star do the work back then. It's really kind of a complicated web. Mm-hmm. But um, the the first car that had gone to CES won one of the Car Sound Magazine Awards, which was a big deal. It wasn't a best of show, but they gave away some smaller awards. And the first thing that I had done that had gone to CES was with Gold Star. So Kenny gets the the job to build the Impala that's going to go in Kicker's booth for CES. And he needs help. And so I'm I'm down there helping. And uh, Chris and him handled the majority of the car. I did, you know, some kick panels and some work in the dash. And um, I was pretty excited to be a part of that kind of team. And, and it was going to be the first like big main CES build for me. That was like something that was substantial. Mm-hmm. And it had to be a, a f- couple of weeks before CES. He gets a phone call. Kenny gets a phone call from the guys at Kicker and they're like, um, did you guys already build the subwoofer box? And we're, he's like, yeah, it's all, it's all done. It's painted, you know, it's all fiberglass, super cool looking. Don't worry, you'll love it. And they're like, yeah, it's not going to work with the new woofers. And we're like, hmm, interesting. And they're like, yeah, so you're probably going to need some help. So we're going to send uh, two of our guys out and uh, they're going to help you get the car redone you know, in the next two weeks or whatever. So they sent John Myers and one of the other guys from kicker out to help us get the car ready for CES. And they bring the woofers with them. And the reason the woofers weren't going to fit in the box is because that was the year they introduced the square woofer. And that's why it wasn't going to fit in the box. So, um, it, it was really cool. John was the first kind of, um, like factory trained, like had been in the the education side, had worked, you know, next to a lot of big time installers. And um, he was the kind of the first person that kind of exposed me to that kind of corporate mentality and that kind of stuff. And just super down to earth guy. He's done trainings all over the uh, hell. We ran into him at a training in Canada. Like he's, he travels the world training and, and a good dude. But I picked up a lot of cool little fabrication things from him that was, you know, outside the realm that I would usually do. And it taught me a couple of little tricks mm-hmm. that I still use and share with people today. And um, it was a really good experience moving forward. So we ended up taking that car to, to CES and it won the best of show ultra stealth, which it, they basically gave away two best of show awards. One was super flashy and one was like the integrated and we won like the integrated one even though we were trying mm-hmm. to be flashy which is kind of weird which was i mean it's it's cool yeah. i have that picture we can post too but um yeah that was kind of a, a cool experience and kind of the culmination of of networking and and working with some new people and seeing some new stuff that kind of pushed all of that. so at what year was this that's got to be right around 99 2000 somewhere in there okay so after this is you you're right out of paris yeah so and and i i maintained a relationship with paris and with gold star and i would help i i at that time kind of was just floating around helping Mm -hmm. as people had big projects and doing some of my own projects and um 
Yeah. And so I believe the path from there was that Chris and I tried to open our own shop and we had a money backer and it just, we had no idea what we were doing. It was just terrible. Mm -hmm. And so that lasted for maybe a year. We probably had a year lease and that's probably what we did was a year. And that was about the time that my wife and I were ready to get married. And um, yeah, I had built a van for a company called Visonic. And it was one of those weird things where like somebody had gotten paid a bunch of money to build this van and they never finished. And it was this, you know, like we're talking about, it looked like a jacuzzi Mm -hmm. on the inside is a bunch of painted glass and um, the car, it wasn't drivable and all this kind of stuff. So somehow it had gotten to me to redo. And um, one of the guys I met, you, you want to talk about going back with some machining stuff. Um, One of the guys I had met that worked at gold star, his name was Garrett Frank. I haven't talked to Garrett in a really long time, but his dad owned a company that built out like supermarkets and stuff. So they'd build like cash wraps and signage and deli counters and all that kind of stuff. And they had a CNC machine, Mm -hmm. right? So Garrett had told me like, Hey, you're doing that big van project. Do you, do you want me to cut you parts on the CNC? And you're like, what? So this was, and and we're like, okay. So I would go over to his dad's construction company and I would sit next to him because I had no idea how to draw on the computer. And he would, you know, as long as it was, you you know how it is drawing stuff. If it's rectangles and and squares Mm -hmm. and inlays and circles, it's all easy. And he would draw it all up. Then we go out back and the machine would cut it out. And, I did that van that way and I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. So then every time from then on, I would get a car. I would just go to Garrett and be like, draw me this, draw me that, do that, do that. And then eventually I ended up having him make me templates. Um, We'll get to that a a few years down the road. But yeah, that we just hang on the wall and use to do all sorts of stuff back before there were All I can think about is what what, what is Garrett doing today? It sounds like he's the OG of... Of car audio fabrication. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, he wasn't like such a hardcore fabricator. He was like an, just an installer there. And, um, my guess is, is that he runs his dad's company. I'm pretty sure it's still there. I've been, there's a really cool hardwood place right around the corner, but maybe we'll, uh, we'll reach out to him. I'll put him on the top of the list that I'll, I'll have to look up good old Garrett and see what he's up to. He had another, another friend of that worked there and, and he was cutting parts for him too. I don't know whatever happened to that guy say maybe joe or something all right so you're on your hard to go back that far you're on your own you're floating around yeah i had built that van for visonic and um when i had the shop i actually competed db drag one year um out here on the west coast we had a big team called team xs spl and um i decided that i i you know i had conquered the sound quality world after doing the Stevie Nicks card. No, I'd, I'd kind of gotten that education and I had always kind of been, um, I'd always kind of paid attention to DB drag racing and decided that I liked the engineering side of it. And I had a ton of experience, you know, at this point I had been using, you know, box building software for 10 years. Every box I built, I ran through box building software. I, I knew, I knew that process. I knew from looking at what the computer was telling me, I could envision how that would sound in a car. And I really wanted to apply that knowledge and, and try to build something cool. So we built a car and trailed it around and went to finals. Um, we were actually sponsored by Zapco as an SPL team, which was 
kind of crazy and uh, had 9.0s when the 9.0 came out. And yeah, we, we had some fun with that and did, did pretty darn well. And, um, but just kind of like ran that year. Then um, the following year, uh, I was getting ready to rebuild the car, thinking about rebuilding the car. And I had noticed that um, the company that owned Visonic was uh, called the Inaba Group. And they had a bunch of brands. They were Mobile Authority and MA Audio. And they had bought Cliff Designs, like a bunch of brands. And they, they, not the greatest gear in the world, but, you know. They had this amp that they said did 4,000 watts. And since I had a contact there, I had built them that van or finished that van for them. I'm like, you know, let me go up and see them and and um, see if I can borrow one of those amps to test. And I get up there and I meet a guy. They, they introduced me to their guy that's their engineer. I'm giving mm-hmm. I'm giving yeah. Matt the, the air yeah. quotes right now, right? And um, and I'm like, yeah, I want to I want to check out, you know, the the 4,000 watt amp and see how much power it really does. And he's like, oh, it does 4,000 watts. It does over 4,000 watts. And I'm like, oh, I absolutely don't believe you, right? And um, he brings me in and shows me his test setup, and he's got this bank of batteries and this bank of resistors. And I'm like, okay, how? show me that this thing does 4,000 watts. And and he does it, and he's measuring just the straight voltage and and does the math. And, and he's like, see, there there you go. And, and it, you know, that's one ohm worth of resistors. And, and so that's the math. And I'm like, yeah, but the only thing is that that's not, I know you say that's one ohm, but that's not one ohm. By the time you start playing a thousand Watts through it, the impedance is risen like crazy. And you're literally like a 10th of that power. And, um, and we, we can't really tell what it's really doing. This is way before amp dinos and stuff like that. And I'm like, you, you want to see that same thing. Let me grab one of my 9.0 Zapcos out of the car. And like by his math, it's doing like 12,000 watts on his resistor uh-huh. bank. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's doing 12,000 watts. So um, long story short, I uh, ended up getting a job there. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up working alongside their quote unquote engineer and um, did a lot of stuff, a lot of you know marketing and product development and te- actually getting them to test product and supporting some competitors that we had and and did that for a few years and that's that's that point you want to keep going it, yeah, it, it keep just going. keeps going and going yeah so we're after gonna finish that, you um out. yeah oh gosh it's, it's we still got a ways to go we're not even alpine <laughs> yet <laughs> um so then uh when i had the the shop with my buddy chris for a little bit i had met a guy his name sean bennett who had a detail shop and i had done some work on his forerunner and then a couple of his customer cars and, and we kind of become friends. And when I bailed from the Anaba group, we just kind of started building stuff out of Sean's detail shop. And it was really weird. It was in a parking structure and it was literally the bottom floor of a parking structure. And we built a wood shop down there <laughs> and I started building cars out of this parking structure It was totally random. Wow. But um, before we'd built the room, Sean had this forerunner that was sponsored by Audiobon, and we did a bunch of clay, crazy fiberglass work. I mean, I literally set up like a Ryobi router with a, a wood top over a trash can to like make rings and um, build his forerunner. But, you know, it's, it's a car that was on the cover of Car Audio and Electronics magazine, and um, that was kind of a big deal. And we took that car to SEMA, and at SEMA, um, I have no idea what year this would be. Probably, oh, uh, maybe 
right around that time, 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. I'd have to look up. I can, I can probably figure out the dates, but um, we took it to SEMA. Uh, at SEMA, the guys from Sony saw it. And uh, it was Rick Kojan mm-hmm. and Rob Liss from Sony uh, saw it and were talking to us about it and, and liked what we had done. And they were putting together kind of a, it was kind of to hit that hot import night scene as you were there. So we're right around those years and they wanted to put together this team explode um, where they kind of grabbed one person from each kind of car culture mm-hmm. where they had like a, an import car and they wanted, they really wanted Sean to do something with a truck. And so we kind of negotiated with them and, and we're talking to them after SEMA and, and we're like, well, what is it that you want us to build you? And they're like, Oh no, no, no. We want you to build your own car. And, and we just need to know how much money you need. And we're like, wait a second, you're going to pay us to build our own car. And uh, so Sean basically struck a deal and, and kind of behind the scenes, we built the, the Sony truck, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but it's a, a slammed Silverado that had seven 10 inch woofers behind mm-hmm. the seat. Yeah, I remember that. And had like, yeah, had an insane amount of TVs and a, it had, a, I think the coolest thing of that whole truck was we, we took like a 17 inch, which was huge for a computer monitor back then. We took like a 17 inch monitor and put it in the bed and built like a little fiberglass doghouse. And then the Sony guys that did the Ibo dog, it was like this mm-hmm. robot dog they had back in the day program the dog to like walk around the bed at the shows and then it would go sit down and watch tv that's in the that's inside its cool. doghouse so i yeah i mean so was, i feel like you know for me coming up in that generation i feel like there's a lot of stuff that from an engineering standpoint was like at its height and then it just kind of died so i feel like the engineering of stuff that you saw from 2003 to 2005 like when you go back to those the og alpine cars and like yeah yeah you think that or you think fish's stuff that motorized into like a million pieces there was just a ton of engineering and movement and motorization and that's why like for me on that escalade build that i just did not too long ago i'm like i feel like you got to bring some of that back you know what i mean like if if you can do something and you can make it move and make it come to life, that's where, that's where everything was at in that like Oh two to Oh five. And that's what I saw coming up. Like, dude, that's fucking cool. I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely pushed into that range. And so like that forerunner that we had built, Sean had a couple of crazy ideas. Like we, up front where the battery was, where you have the fuse, you know, everybody was doing cool holders for the fuses and some sort of like decorative panel near the battery. And Sean was like, screw that. I want TVs in the engine. TV, TVs everywhere from 02 to 05. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was the, that was the thing. So with the forerunner, we put it there when we did the truck, we, I mean, Sony made some nice, small, compact, good picture monitors. And like, that was the whole goal of that standard cab truck was to see how many monitors we could fit in it. So it, you know, a standard cab truck, it had TVs in the headrest. The, the pillars behind you had a monitor on each side. The headliner had three TVs. Like if you got, if you looked back in from the back, uh, obviously a big TV in the dash, the armrests of the truck motorized up 
and guess what mm-hmm. tv uh the pedestal for the seats like the sides of the seats had tvs in them of course it had tvs in the engine compartment like the bed had like three there tvs was, on each side plus there the, was definitely like, a tv like three-year run where you would oh, see yeah. tvs and like turn signals Oh yeah, it was it was absolutely nuts. We we did that. We did we did twenty something TVs in a standard cab truck. I remember the next year at CES, there were some guys down here by us. I want to say Luther Sound Design LSD or something out here, and they they had some Eclipse that Excel had sponsored, and it was like the pillars had like six two inch TVs yeah, yeah. down each one. Like they they took like we went stupid, yeah. and they just like, went. I, I remember stupid, this like, Mustang that I always see at shows. And it had like TVs in every turn signal, just like the dumbest places. Like, like yeah. the door handle had a TV. Like, yeah. you're questioning to yourself, why is there even a TV there? And in my yeah. clips, the the one that I was telling you about, the one that I had, where I had the Lambo door and the suicide door, the Lambo door when it went up because there was a TV in the door. When the door was up, <laughs> the TV was in the normal aspect ratio, like it, as you can see, it level. But when it was down, it was all crooked. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was all, you could yep. only view it as the doors up. Right. Gotcha. Oh, that's funny. Um, so we were, we had built the, the, um, the truck for Sony and I had been doing, there was a company back then called APC that did all the clear headlights and taillights. That was like the huge fad with all the kind of import scene and they were growing into like a you know they went from a guy hawking parts brian was selling parts out of his truck driving around and um turned it into a huge company and they had this huge presence in the u.s and in canada and this huge show car fleet so they were using a couple different guys to do audio in the cars and that was uh larry ashley was running that kind of program and Larry was sending me some cars out of that batch and we were doing you know, just over the same thing over the top. It's all about grabbing attention. It's all about when you're in that sea of cars at a car show that you have something that draws people to the car. And so we were doing I look back now and like I think a lot of it's hideous, but we were doing wild stuff and, and trying to push limits. And some of it was tasteful and some of it was not. And um, we were obviously keeping an eye on what fish was doing and what the alpine guys were doing and and definitely a lot of inspiration there and it finally got to a point where uh apc got so big that they wanted to bring somebody in house and i was just kind of like you know playing around building some stuff with sony and and building some stuff on my own and they offered me like a real job and i had gotten married and i felt i kind of owed it to my wife to take a real job and so i went to work at apc and um we got to build some some really fun sema projects and kind of see that whole world that's what really opened my eyes to the the real business of SEMA and that kind of stuff and um, got to build a lot of cool stuff and meet a lot of cool people um, we did one of the first episodes of overhaul and we did it at APC and got to meet Chip and and do that whole build and that was kind of fun and um, did that for a couple of years and then they got sold and weren't doing so well financially and I was doing a car for CES for Sony kind of on the side with Sean. He had uh, he had sold the truck, I think, and bought a 350Z. And we did a kind of a crazy system in his 350Z. And 
it was right as as we got laid off from APC. The the car building crew got laid off, and I want to say like late November or early December. Pretty good and time like, to be everybody's laid off. Like, yeah, it's yeah. like really nice right around yeah. the holidays and all that. But it was like it wasn't a big deal to me because like I had all this work to get this car ready for CES and that kind of stuff, and and spent some some more time with the Sony guys, and um, I, I it was always a, a great pleasure, and I have the utmost respect for for Rick and Rob and um, Rick Kojan's always just been an awesome dude and always been uh, a supporter of mine. So I super appreciate that. And um, so we went to CES and they actually hired me to help set up booths and do all that kind of stuff. Everybody's trying to help me out. And um, we're setting up in the, the 350Zs in the booth and who comes walking in the booth, but Mike Vu, who was working at Alpine and they, okay. that was the year they introduced the X5. And Mike pulls, says, Hey, let's go outside. And this is when we both smoked. And he's like, Let's go outside and have a cigarette. So I walk outside with Mike and he turns to me. He's like, You can't tell anybody, but I'm leaving Alpine. And I'm like, Oh man, what are you doing? He's like, Well, I'm going to open my own business. And I just, you know, my time is, has come and gone. And um, he said, They need somebody to fill my role. He, he basically said, I don't want to leave them hanging. Um, I, I would love it if you would take my job. I'm pretty sure they'd have you. And I was at that point when I had gotten laid off from APC, I was just like, I need to get back into like a, a regular manufacturer's job and not installing. And I'm married now and I need to like, you know, grow up and stop playing with cars and stop playing with car audio and blah, blah, blah. And then it's but you like, you can't turn that down there. There it is on a silver platter, like literally the most coveted job in car mm-hmm. audio at the time. And you're you're getting it, you know, your resume is going to the front of the line. And I'm like, holy crap. And um, so I don't think I'd met Steve Brown a couple of times before that, but Mike kind of made a an effort to kind of make sure we had a little bit of a conversation, you know, Mike hasn't told Steve that he's leaving yet or anything, but made sure that, that we had a line of communication at CS and that kind of stuff. And then in the following, uh, following weeks after that all kind of unfolded, uh, we kind of worked out a deal and that's when I headed to another super pivotal part of mm-hmm. my career, which was going to work in the show car department at Alpine. So jumping right into it, your first day at Alpine, what? I don't know that I remember my first day. I remember walking in. It was it was kind of weird because it was my first time like really interviewing. Besides Circuit City, it was my first time like interviewing in like a corporate mm-hmm. scenario where like I had to have multiple meetings with these people yeah. and they they cared more about references. like <laughs> Yeah, and it was it was not just about like Hey, can he show up and can he get the the work done that we need done? It was like, you know, are you a reliable person? Are you a good person? Yeah. Like it was, you were really being tested, and I'd never kind of went through that. I'd always, you know, most of my interviews were conducted at the back door, not the front yeah. door type yeah. of thing, right? And so it was, it was a very interesting um, experience, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, a little bit of salary negotiations and whatnot and all that. And, and I started, but I remember the first time I stepped foot in that building and you see some of the cars sitting there and just like, it's nerve wracking for sure. It's like, Oh, Oh my gosh. Like here I am. There's Steve Brown. There's uh, okay. Now, now at this point, what Alpine cars were already done? Um, I mean, 
the, of note of note working backwards is the easiest way for me to do it was the year before they had built the x5 which was the re-release okay super it's probably one of i i want to say the x5 was one of the most i don't know transcendent yeah i mean for 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 like my age because I remember just the airbrushing of the different artists on the side. The seat comes out of the side and it's like that. Was it a one seat? It was two seat, but uh, tandem. So one behind the other. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were both center seats that motorized like out of the side of the X5. Yeah. And I'm trying to think like every every year there was kind of progression. Let's work backwards. We'll get through them real quick. The X5 and then uh, the year before that was the Mini Cooper. And the year before that, I believe, was the Civic. And then the year before that was the RSX. And then I mm-hmm. think the year before the RSX would have been, I don't know if it was the Excursion. I don't know if it goes back. I, I might be missing one or two in there. But um, yeah. The, so yeah, pretty pretty intimidating. Yeah, I mean, these were, <laughs> these were cars that every year were coming out and kind of pushing the limits. I remember... You know, I was at APC and obviously Mike and I were friends and and Mike and Steve came by the booth at SEMA and we were kind of talking and, you know, they're they're like, yeah, I can't, can't wait for you to see it. I can't wait for you to see it. And they, they were just kind of dropping some clues. And that was really the first car that they went to town on the outside. You know, they um, they welded up the doors and the roof was off of it. And then the, the whole seat motorized out the back of the car to get in it and it it really mm-hmm. was the first time they had pushed that exterior side. And that's what Mike kind of Mike kind of brought some of that bodywork and um exterior mentality to the game, which really stepped it up over, you know, the the RSX was the last of the two seat cars that was a dashboard build. And uh that's mm-hmm. what we forgot in there. We forgot Brownie's BMW uh the one year. There's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's it's there's a lot of cars there, but then you go into the bay and there's, you know, posters of all the cars and there's t-shirts from every car that's built. And, you know, you obviously mm-hmm. have this kind of standard to live up to. And um, I think that the X5 really kind of pushed it. It was the re-release of F1 status and really had a, you know, kind of a mind on sound quality and showing off what those speakers could do and the multi-channel processing and, going with the center drive and still the wild outside and inside and kind of mixing that. So um, we started kind of, when I got to Alpine, we started with a couple of basic cars. Jeff Fay that used to work there had a PT cruiser. We like built a system in and it was kind of like getting my feet wet, see how things worked, um, understanding kind of the layout of the bay and where everything was and processes. You know, you're, you're also kind of crippled by the corporate environment of there's, there's a process for everything and there's an expense report and there's an approval process. And, um, so first day at Alpine, what happens? I don't remember. Like I can't, I, I don't remember day by day. Um, you don't remember the first day walking it's in a blur. I mean, you got to remember that's, uh, however many years ago, that's like 15 years ago. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Maybe I feel it's like 16. it should be longer. Yeah. I think it'll be 16 coming up. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I remember feeling intimidated and just kind of unsure of how everything was going to work. You know, it was really the first besides the, the circuit city days, it was the first corporate job, you know, and, and it, you know, the, the circuit city job was more retail and this was very much corporate and there were meetings and part of the marketing team. And we, we had 
So let me ask you this. Leading up to this point, what is the biggest job you've done to date? Um, I think show car wise was some of the Sony stuff that we did out of the detail shop. And um, I had done the uh, Sony truck, the standard cab truck we talked about with the Ivo dog and the seven, the 10 inch woofers. Um, mm-hmm. We had done the 350Z for Sony was pretty big. I mean, that was full fiberglass door panels and the whole hatch area was fiberglass and obviously all sorts of APC was kind of volume. We did a lot of show cars and everyone had painted fiberglass in it. Mm-hmm. So those were like kind of some of the the big ones. Obviously, we talked about the stuff that I did with uh, Kenny Williams and the audio concepts guys for Kicker. So yeah, I mean, just a, a wide range of projects. And then kind of the crazy part was there was one more build I was working on as I got hired at Alpine. And I remember telling him, I'm like, well, I do have one project I have to finish that's for Sony. <laughs> so here I was starting a job <laughs> at Alpine and I was still finishing a project with Sony. And that was the uh, the Porsche Cayman uh, that they had. is the one they yeah. dropped the motor yeah, out and that... did the supercharger yeah, on the motor yeah, yeah. and all that. And so that was kind of interesting, like having to finish that on nights and weekends as I was starting with Sony. And um, and then it was really interesting at SEMA that year because we go into SEMA and it was the, as far as I remember, the only year Alpine demonstrated or had a booth at SEMA and they were right across from Sony. And here was the HHR that we built for yeah. Alpine. And then directly across from it in the Sony booth was the, the Cayman that I had finished. So, so you had, you had your Alpine polo on and then underneath that you had a Sony shirt <laughs> Not on. quite, not quite. But <laughs> yeah, those were, uh, those were some fun times. And uh, yeah, I remember, you know, as we, as we got going, it was really exciting to be a part of that and, and get to throw ideas out. And I feel like I had to be the new guy and Brownie's the one that had all the experience. And again, we'll have Brownie mm-hmm. on soon to kind of revisit these and, and take you through all those cars. But yeah, be for fun. sure. So I, I get there and, and obviously I know he's a huge talent, but we're also two different personalities. You know, he's used to this. He's built mm-hmm. this same mentality over and over again, obviously highly skilled and, and such a high, high profile person. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, relatively behind the scenes and unknown and like maybe known mm-hmm. amongst the people that I worked with and stuff, but not, like I hadn't gotten a lot of like kind of national notoriety or anything like that at that point. And so uh, he definitely took a gamble Brownie did and, and, and picking me to work beside him. And we kind of get into that first year and the first big build, uh, which was the BMW six series, the sinister six. And mm-hmm. we, I, I want to say we had some like corporate direction that basically said we want to do a BMW and BMW is willing to work with us. And so there was kind of some behind the scenes things that worked out and Brown. Yeah. So, so when you get these cars, right, are these cars pre-designed to a point or is it just like a direction? Hey, we want to use this car. This is a broad idea. And then you guys <laughs> run with it. How much is planned? How much is modeled? How much is improv? Yeah, somewhere I have some really bad sketches, I think. Maybe some pictures of some bad napkin sketches. But basically, here's how it went down. We we were basically, I, I want to say, and I don't remember exactly how it was forced upon us, but 
I believe we were mm-hmm. told that we were going to use a BMW and Brownie came up with the concept and just was like, okay, here's, here's the idea. I want to do this rotating seat mechanism. And he's explaining it to me. And I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm the new guy. And I'm just like, and this is your, your first time there. Your first yeah. Alpine build. And, and he's talking about a rotating yeah. seat and you're like, how's again, this going to happen? We're, we're at this point just learning each other as people. And and I'm, I'm looking right. at him like, this is a terrible idea. Like, I don't even understand yeah. what you're thinking. And yeah, I hope you're not depending on right, me to make right. it rotate. So, <laughs> so that's what the car started with was the idea of um, having this kind of turret style seat that was the brownie was just mm-hmm. this is what we're doing like yeah, like no say no anything in it and i'm like well i i hope i'm gonna be able to get some ideas in and but i'm i'm along for the ride you know and so mm-hmm. that year was the year that pdx was getting launched and so the idea was to show off the amplifiers and also uh remember v hub pro okay so yep. it was those were the two kind of, of course, every, yeah. every car had a marketing message there was something that there was a story the good old v yeah, it's Pro. such a great oh, idea <laughs> like think about that that was 15 16 years ago and it was a great yeah. idea it would still be viable today if it worked better <laughs> um yeah but it, it was a great idea for those that don't know it was basically a radio in a box with a little control pad very much like bmw iDrive type controller and you mm-hmm. had a video output that could go onto any screen and then you had your rca right. outputs and all that kind of stuff on this black yeah, the cool thing about that is like if you had like a nissan armada with a factory nav screen and you could have a video input you could essentially make an aftermarket radio out of that factory yeah. screen yeah I, I did quite yeah. a few of them. I mean, them, I, I liked it. It was, you look, it's it's like anything now. The graphics just don't hold up. It's like yeah. going back and looking at Atari <laughs> all these years later. And it's like, yeah. how did we ever play that? So yeah. um, those were kind of the two things that we were, um, our goal was to show off. And so then we started talking about, okay, how are we going to do a demonstration system in an open air car? They had done the the Mini Cooper, which was open. They were, we were coming off the X5, which was a closed up, you know, pretty solid demo. Um, mm-hmm. Minus all the reflections. That's a lot of reflective surfaces. And uh, everything, everything yeah, was painted yeah, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Glass for days. And um, yep. so we kind of came up with this idea. Well, what if we built the speakers into the pod and you listened near field, much like, you know, kind of a studio up close pointed right at you. And then the obvious one, and and this was luckily, well, not luckily. I mean, it was this was the the big part that I took on was we were trying to figure out how to get bass into the car. And for the people that know me, I, I feel like I've always been pretty creative with subwoofer enclosures. I've been doing it for a long time, a lot of modeling, a lot of, you know, kind of unconventional stuff. And the use case for that car was that it was going to be a demonstration vehicle it was going to get used at ces and then it was going to go on the dub show tour so it was always going to be shown it was more than likely going to be on a platform and i turned to brownie at some point and was like what if the subwoofers were on the outside of the car and they loaded into the ground and then we brought a port up in and the port fired into the back of your head and obviously we have some phase issues and there's some interesting stuff to figure out, but what do you think of the idea? And, and he was like, cool, let's go with it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so that's, 
Seems very, very Gary. Yeah, Belden. I mean, it was over the I whole mean, idea again for all the guys out there. Like, how often have you gotten amazing bass in a convertible? And how have you, like, if you had a scenario where you're trying to show off an amplifier that makes some legitimately huge power, uh, how are you going to get enough woofer in a convertible? Oh, yeah, by the way, we took up the entire interior with a turret, right? Like, (laughs) how are you going to get a woofer in this thing? And how are you going to get it to have big bass? And so um, that kind of became the the one option that I thought was going to be good. So we uh, we talked about this car and then we worked with BMW and they found a car that was a Lemon Law buyback and it was at a dealer up in Northern California. And we ended up, my wife and I flew up, uh, went to the dealership and picked up the car and drove it back down to Southern California. It was a, it was a pretty fun experience and, and a nice little road trip and getaway and a fun car to drive, very big and boaty feeling and so each each car that Alpine's doing as a demo car, are they trying to find like ridiculous deals like Lemon Laws and things um, like that? That was more, uh, it was kind of on BMW side, I believe, that they were trying to find a way to kind of stretch our budget. And we really kind of liked that 6 Series. It kind of played into that whole idea and dimensionally kind of fit what we were looking to do. Now, is that something that Alpine sought out for BMW or do they go to different brands or different manufacturers and say, Hey, we're doing this big car audio demo build. What do you think? What kind of deal can you provide? Things like that. How does that work? Um, specifically we were doing a lot of stuff with BMW on the OEM side at the time. And so that's kind of, there's, there's, there's a lot more at play at Alpine than, Alpine is, is the outside world knows it as aftermarket car audio. The OEM business there is a much larger scale setup and, right. and much more important than the lowly aftermarket. And so mm-hmm. just to kind of build that relationship and, and kind of work back and forth, that was kind of the directive was to use a BMW if possible. And so I believe we had worked with their marketing team their marketing team had located, you know, we told them we're willing to take a lease car or return or whatever it was. And they basically came back to us and made, we made a deal. We paid for the car and the marketing team, I believe paid for the BMW marketing team paid for part of the car. And it was obviously, a internally it was cheaper than normal because it was a lemon law buyback. And obviously we didn't care. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, we get the car, we get it back and, you know, working at APC, we tore down a lot of cars and in a hurry, um, we did an episode of mm-hmm. overhaul in there. I mean, we, we tore a car apart in 45 minutes one time for, for overhauling. And here we are, we, we stripped that car in like a day, like literally everything that unbolted off of it came off of it. And the plan was to order, I want to say it was a Hammond, uh, wide body kit from like, we were trying to get our contacts at Alpine Europe to get it for us. And, um, we're going to put some wheels on it and, you know, figure out this top mechanism to kind of close and open the door and do the subwoofer enclosure and the turret and the dashboard with all the screens. So, so as it's all stripped out, right. And then you and Brownie are standing there. The first thing that starts happening, like bring, bring me through that train of thought. Okay. So you're just standing there, the car, somewhere there's a video and you're ready to get started. Where there's a video, and I what? 
what yeah, happens? So somewhere there's a video online, I think on YouTube, like I put this video up, whatever it was, 15 years ago, 14 years ago on YouTube um, of us tearing that car apart. I have some tapes somewhere. I had a video camera back then. And there's so many people right oh, now searching gosh. on YouTube for yeah, that video. It's so crazy. <laughs> I think the account is stereo guy or something. I don't remember, but um yeah, if I would have monetized that video way back in the day, I might have some money by now. Um, but yeah, it, it starts with me like looking at like, you know, the the sticker on the car. And at the time it was whatever it was, 80 or 100 grand, which, you know, these days that'd probably be $150,000 or something. I don't know. And um, we just strip it down. And the first thing that we kind of did on it was to start unwiring the car and you know this is before we had all the alarm modules for remote start and some of those cars were pretty high tech i have a a really cool picture of the gauge cluster which i think we buried in the floor uh down down in front of the uh like under the dash and there's there's a picture on the cluster where it says like car too low, do not drive or something like that. And it's like all these warning things going off. So basically the goal was to get all the factory wiring out of the way and bundled up in the front of the car and just remove things and make sure the car runs, remove things, make sure the car runs and just, you kind of go through that process and um, making sure that the car is still going to run. Cause at this point we just don't know. That was the big concern. It's just that we would disconnect something or disconnect too much, and then the car wouldn't run anymore, and we wouldn't know what was going on. And um, at the time, that car was new enough that we didn't have any any way to start the car, and the like remotely, right? Like there was no way to interface. Okay. The car would not run right. without the key. Right. In. So one of the funny funniest things in that whole car is that I literally built a motorized assembly, and I took the whole lock assembly out of the column and it's sitting underneath the floorboard in there with a motor that turns the key so it, it's this uh actuator with uh, built-in stop switches the same way we would control the transmissions in those cars and you can mm-hmm. basically set it to a certain distance and and so yeah so that's what shifts the sinister six between off uh ignition start and it's literally just a mechanic, mechanically That's, a motor that drives the, the key in the ignition. How long, how long did that single project take you to figure uh, out? I think like from start to finish to days, build. Day and a half, two days. Yeah, nothing okay. crazy. That's cool. Um, it's pretty simplistic. And again, there's a lot of stuff. Simplistic. Everyone listening is like, that seems like it would be. Well, today it would be no <laughs> it big deal. I just plug into the OBD2 <laughs> port and just do it. Like it's no yeah. big deal. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. And, you know, when we're teaching classes and we're teaching best practices, I'm not saying that every inch of those cars underneath uses the best practices. There's Those cars were built on extremely short timelines. And so the guys that have seen me at a mobile solutions class running 200 miles an hour, it's because I trained for this shit. Like, we, we yeah. hustle <laughs> when we have to. So, um so yeah, so we're we're kind of going through this whole um, scenario, and I think you know Steve jumped right in, and again when we have him on, I'm going to be interested to see how he remembers all this, and if we remember it the same or not. It could be we could have totally. There's a few questions I'm saving okay, for perfect. that. 
So as I remember it, I'm just going to clarify everything with the way I remember it was. Um, Brownie kind of dove in and started on the turret project. And the idea was that we wanted to stay out of each other's way. We had it. At this point, at this point, when he when he jumped on the turret project, were you just like, God damn it, that's awesome. Because I, I don't I want nothing to do well, with that. No, no, no. It wasn't necessarily like that. I, again, I was. I think that I had some concern in the beginning that I wanted to make sure that I had input, right? But I also have to respect the heritage and his experience. And mm. again, when you know how it is when you when you're doing something that's uh, to to quote the great Tracy Weaver, not my bro, yeah. right? When it's not your <laughs> right. vision, sometimes it's a little harder to right. envision the final product. And so. Uh-huh. What we'd kind of agreed upon, we had an idea for the amp rack. Um, the amp rack, the whole idea was looking into a rear engine supercar and seeing the motor under glass. And that was the idea was that we would lay out the PDX amplifiers to kind of look like cylinder heads in the back under acrylic to kind of mimic that supercar look. And and again, when, when mm-hmm. it came to the styling of that car and, and every aspect, like we stared at tons of pictures of supercars and there's, there's some sections and some areas. Like if you, I could, if we had a picture that we could post up, I could point to it and go, okay, here's like, you know, the, the kind of scoop look to the door that was totally just staring at a Porsche Carrera GT going, you know, I really like the way that mm-hmm. line flows and it connects. Yeah. 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 You know, one thing into another and back and forth and kind of like taking those little bits and letting them inspire you to kind of recreate and blend them together. So the, the idea was that we would, uh, Brownie'd start in the front with the seat and I would start in the back with the woofer enclosure and we kind of like work towards each other and try to stay out of each other's way and that kind of stuff. And so you're both doing your yeah, vision. Yeah. So point. I start on, you know, cutting and welding all this metal out of the way in the trunk and cutting the trunk floor out to do this, like just insane woofer box in the back to house these woofers. And I don't have. I haven't thought about how we're going to integrate it with the bumper yet. Right. And I have the main structure of the box done in the car and it's just kind of raw and hanging there. And now I have to figure out how to integrate it into the back of the car. And I'm pretty sure Brownie will remember this the same way I do, but he was leaving to go. I think he was going for a training or a show and he, or maybe it was vacation. I don't know, but he was leaving town for, I I think I want to say a week. And, He's explained to me how, you know, the Alpine way of doing it and that he wants this this way and that over here. And like he's saying it, but I'm not envisioning it at all. Like it's just it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not quite adding up. <laughs> and I'm looking at it and I'm just like, all right, I've never done it that way. Right. I, I know how I would do it, but it was kind of like I was mm-hmm. being told to do it the Alpine way. And. So he leaves and go on, goes on vacation. And I spend like a week like doing this the way I think he's telling me to do it. But I've never seen anything done that way or whatever. And I'm looking at it. I'm just like, this is terrible. Like, this is not the way to do this at all. And um, we Brownie comes back and he's like, well, let's look at it. And I look at it and I'm like. And like I can see it in his face, and I'm thinking the same. I'm just like I'm like I don't know. I'm like I'm pretty sure I completely misunderstood what you were talking about because this doesn't seem like how I would do it. Like I would want to do it totally different. And I know this is going to sound crazy, 
this gets back to something we talked about in the first episode. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I kind of want to just throw it all away and start over if I can. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks at me and he goes, sure. Like, I agree. Yeah. Let's do your way or whatever we came up with. And yeah. And, um, I think it was from that point on that we kind of like, I I would look over his shoulder and he would look over my shoulder because kind of like when I um, got paired up with Mike Vu back in the day at at Gold Star, Mm -hmm. we had completely different ways of doing things. And I had spent some good time at APC, you know, where I had a a guy that made tooling for vacuum form and all sorts of fiberglass molds. And a a guy that used to like lay up airplane wings, like really taught me how to use different resins and, and really kind of think differently about fiberglass than what normal car audio guys would have. I worked alongside real body men and painters and like all these different kind of people that I got to learn from. And so I had a a pretty unique perspective on things at that time and and was pretty well-rounded from a fabrication standpoint. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so it was really interesting. And I got to tell you, like I had always kind of felt like I was the fastest installer that I know. Like I, I would mm-hmm. hustle through stuff and I would, I would skate the line between, you know, I, I, I think I would just, I would go fast and, and just try to get as much done on these on demo car type stuff as possible because the faster we get it done, the more we could do and the more impressive it would be. And we always had a deadline. So mm-hmm. um, I just remember looking at how fast Brownie was doing stuff. And I was just, I was floored. Like I'm like, I thought I was fast. This guy is hauling ass. Like, holy crap. I can't believe how fast he gets things roughed in mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff. So we get into it and, 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 you know, he's building stuff and I'm building stuff and we're, we're like waiting for that body kit to show up and waiting for that body kit to show up. And so not to yeah. cut you off real quick, but how long into you being at Alpine was this project start? Um, let me do some quick math. I want to say I probably started in like March and it's probably four months into working there. Okay. So four, four months in you're, you're doing yeah. this project. Yeah. Okay. And cause there's always something to be said for when you start somewhere new, obviously you're going to work slower and this is your first project, first big project. So we had you some are smaller project. first big project. Yeah. So you are going to be working slower to make sure you're doing everything correctly. And obviously Steve's in his groove. He's just, he's done this year after year after year. So he is going to seem fast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will tell you this, like in the, in the scheme of, I always joke about this in the scheme of, uh, Alpine fabricators. And I will put on that list. I'll put Chris Yotto. I'll put Steve Brown. Mm -hmm. I'll put Mike Vu. I'll put myself and I'll put, uh, Brent Davidson who came on when Brownie got his promotion, Brent came on and um, Mm -hmm. I'll kind of put us in a line and the two opposite ends of the spectrum are Chris Yotto and Steve Brown. And Mm -hmm. Yotto is the most meticulous person Mm -hmm. I know and not. Yeah. I think anyone that knows him would say that. And he's going to, he's going to take his time, make sure every inch of everything is done right. And Brownie is less concerned with the up close small detail. He's concerned with the overall impression of the car and the the impact and is the fastest out of all of us. I feel like 
mm-hmm. Vu and I and Brent kind of all fall in the middle in between the two of them, right? But they're the the polar opposites mm-hmm. in that that realm, which is why I think they really put out some interesting stuff. You know, like that's you had Brownie like like getting getting the fast stuff done and and Chris making sure the details were really really nice and um so I get thrown into that and I remember at one point like I, I I'm just gonna I'm air quoting right now but a, a conversation between Brownie and I have like yeah you're thinking about it too much you're 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 spending too much time mm-hmm. on that one little thing that nobody's gonna notice we have a lot of stuff to get done here so Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had to ease up a little bit and we definitely had some help on those cars. I mean, to, to get all the body work and stuff done, but here, here we were into that project and we're, I, I want to say that we only had that car for, we did it in somewhere around three months, three and a half months, start to finish. I can go back and look, but I mean, that's, that's ridiculously impressive when you think about the work that's done. I think about how little I get done in a day now (laughs) and I'm, you know, (laughs) again, you get to the point in those cars, there were times where we're working 24 hours straight through, we're working multiple, you know, 16 hour days. Your one day day is like two days of Yeah. And we're in a, you know, at the time, one of the most state of the art, like we have every tool that we would want at our disposal and that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, at some point we come to the realization that the body kit for the car is not coming. And we're like, I, I looked at Brownie, Brownie looks at me and I, and we're like, we know we're thinking the same thing. Well, we'll just have to build it in addition to mm-hmm. re-sculpting the entire interior and chopping the, the windshield down and making the transmission move i think we spaced the transmission down like three and a half inches in that car to get clearance for the tunnel like you know electronic steering like we we did a lot of stuff for that car in addition mm-hmm. to what you see on the outside just to make it to where you could drive it from a turret that spins mm-hmm. so we kind of i, I want to say that we we're kind of like in talking shit mode like it's like well you know, we, we could just build it. We'll just, we'll just build the whole body then. Like, you know, they had done a little bit of work on the, on the exterior with the doors and stuff and the hatch on the X5. And I had some body shop experience and we we're like, screw it. Let's go for it. Mm-hmm. So the next thing you know, we're framing out the, the body. And, uh, I, I'll just say that I assisted Brownie in framing out the front end of that car, but like we did it in a night. Like we, we framed out the front end of that car in a night. And by the time we were done, we just wrapped the whole thing in grill cloth and fiberglassed it up and went to town. Like it, it was, we just built it like it was a gigantic speaker box and yeah. And it still holds up today. It's still, still around, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was pretty crazy. And I remember specifically looking at him and saying, Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty baller that we built the whole body from scratch. You know, it really really be a middle finger to everybody. And again, behind the scenes, we're all secretly like, you know, we, we got to be better than the Rockford guys, right? Like, so, so that right, was always right, the battle right. back then was Rockford and Alpine. And, and we got to make sure that we're the, the king shit. And little did we know that I believe that was the year that Carlson was building his civic. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. which was pretty crazy too. And, uh, I go, we should paint it black. 
because nothing says like, hey, we built a body from scratch yeah. and then we painted <laughs> yeah. it black. And it's black. That's the easiest yeah. color in the world to hide body work under. Not. So yeah. So his and he looked at me and he's like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. And we went with it. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. So it was it was a long project. I was wore out. Like it it was as hard as I'd ever pushed myself on anything. And I'd had plenty of SEMA and CES deadlines up to that point, but but you just dig yourself a hole and you gotta you gotta find a way out. Was was there any point in that project that you just felt defeated? That you're just like, I don't know how we're gonna overcome this. Um <laughs> I wanna say that like towards the end, like you're just yeah, the <laughs> the energy drinks don't help, like nothing like you're looking for something to kind of like re energize. Just but no but no part of the project was like a stalemate where you're just like I don't know how we're going to make this work. You saying from a difficulty level of something or just time wise? Right, right. Like you like you run now, into an time, obstacle time is, like I said moving the trans- transmission or the the articulating seat. No. <laughs> no. I mean the it all it all came together well, pretty smoothly. I mean, there's always always issues, but like I don't think that we I I think that that's one thing that Brown and I both shared was that we we weren't going to let anything stop us. Like there's like, we have a goal. Mm -hmm. We're going to make something just absolutely insane and nothing's going to stop us. We're just going to get it done. And um, again, we had lots of hands helping. And so, so did you always have that mindset? Cause I know that like when you and I specifically work together at mobile solutions, doing projects, me and you share the same mindset where we're just like, well, let's see if it works. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we just try, we don't know what the outcome may be. We think we know, but we try it to see if yeah, it Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like experience, some of that gets written off as experimentation, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. and when you're on a deadline like that, there's only a certain amount of experimentation that you have time for. The good news on like Correct. the Alpine project is that in the off season, right? Because we, we were handcuffed to build those cars in a short period of time. We had all sorts of time to play around other ideas and brainstorm ideas, you know, the other nine months out of the year when you're not building a car. And so mm-hmm. I remember we had a few things that we kind of, you know, worked through and practiced on other stuff and researched and and tried to figure out. And I, again, depending on what it was, we, we would, we'd find a way, we'd find a way. Mm-hmm. And if, I mean, I guess if we got into something and, and thought that, you know, there was no way we were going to get it done on time. We just ditch it. But I don't remember having to throw, you know, besides the woofer box trim, trim into the back bumper away. I don't remember having to throw a whole lot away on that one. So you guys finished that project. So so, so we are, I'm absolutely beat, right? Like I, I pushed like I'd never pushed. I'm beyond tired. We get the car to CES. We, we have a few issues with the car. I'll wait till Brownie's on and maybe he'll tell you some of those stories about uh, the hallway trying to get it into CES and that kind of stuff. But we get the car all done and Brownie and I go back to the hotel. The car's placed, you know, it's got to be there a few days before the show because they got to build the booth around it the way it was set up back in the day. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to have a meal and a beer and we sit down. It's the first time we get to kind of like relax and recap and it, it goes from like, holy hell, that was the worst we've ever had it to, um, 
so what are we doing next? What are we building next? Like, how do we outdo that? Like, how do we make something better? And yeah, That's and like good. instantly, like, like, like it just like a light switch, like it was a relief. And that, and, and that's, that's awesome for you too, because here you have a dude who's made a bunch of iconic cars and you just completed your first iconic car yeah. with them. And now you're automatically focused on how yeah. to be better. So that's like, that's serious growth very yeah. quickly. That's accel- that's accelerated yeah, for growth. sure, for sure. And it's trial by fire and you just, you just get in there and get it done and yeah, we succeeded. I think one of one of my favorite things that came out of that conversation that night, um, as we got the car in the booth and we we sat down to relax, was I remember telling Brownie exactly what I told you a, a few minutes ago, which was, dude, you mm-hmm. are the fastest motherfucker I have ever worked with. Like you were absolutely flying. And he made a comment to me and he goes, Well, I saw how fast you were going. I felt like I had to kick it up a notch. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, cool. So were you exposed to Jerry's nugget? With Steve? Yeah. Or when so did that it was, come into um, I want to say the first time I went there, I think it, I know Jeff Fay and Steve were there. I can't remember if there's anybody else there, but. And I feel like we need to give a background <laughs> of Jerry's Nugget oh. at this point because nobody knows there's, what Jerry's Nugget is. There's plenty of people that know what Jerry's Nugget is. <laughs> there's a few. So for those that don't know, there's a small casino in Vegas that's out past downtown. It's. It's not in the nice part of neighborhood, the neighborhood. And the way they get people to come out there is for some amazing food deals. And I want to say the first time I went there, they they have this prime rib and they do a prime rib special baked potatoes, salad, bread, I don't know, maybe dessert's not included, but like the whole deal. And it was like, like a yeah. phenomenal dessert. Yeah, it's separate from this, though, because the special used to right, be $7.99 right. for the prime rib special, and it was absolutely delicious. I don't even see how yeah. they could do that, because it's almost like... Well, that's for the smaller one. Full it's slab for the, that's for the okay. smaller one, right? And I remember them telling me about it. I'm not a big prime rib guy, and I remember being so hungry that I just I cut the entire thing up into pieces, and then I just ate the whole thing in like two minutes. And they were like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm like, all right, next time I'm going to get that bigger one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was my first Jerry's Nugget experience. Uh, we we go back at least once. Um, every time I bring someone there, they want to go back. I think the funniest thing is I'd probably been there, I don't know, five or six times. And we're, we had graduated to get the like the, the medium size one is the one that I think you've had, Matt. And, um, mm-hmm. there's an even larger one that's been attempted on a few times and it, it went terribly and yeah, we'd had the medium cut and we're kind of belly aching as we go to the door and the security, there's a security guard out front cause it's that side of town. And he's like, Oh, you guys had the prime rib, huh? And like, oh yeah. Yeah. He's like, ah, yeah, that blackened prime ribs the best. And we're like, wait a second, blackened. Nobody, nobody told us they did a blackened prime rib. We'd just been getting the regular version. And so I want to say we went back the next night to try the blackened prime rib and have never looked back. Never. It's yeah. And I'll say I've been to so many different, uh, steak specialty places that blackened prime rib from Jerry's nugget is phenomenal. And it's the size of a full dinner plate. I have a good picture that we could use uh, somewhere when we do the promo stuff for this. I have a good picture of JT looking down at one. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's massive. 
It is massive. And and the environment, like you're literally just sitting in a coffee shop. It's it's yeah. nothing fancy, yeah. but it is delicious. Yeah. Now you can... I, I think that place has even been featured on uh Food Network. Oh, probably. If I'm not mistaken. Probably. Yeah. But yeah. So uh yeah. Alpine introduced Jerry. So what so was your first exposure to that with yeah. Steve oh, yeah. Yeah. or Steve no? and Jeff Fay. Yeah. And then it became a tradition. I think it was kind of one of those, you know, when you have that kind of big corporate group, you're always looking for places where you can, you can feed a lot mm-hmm. of people at once and, and have the bill not be outrageous and, and still have some fun. Mm-hmm. That definitely fit that bill. All right. So the project after Sinister. Yeah. So the next big car after that was the RLS <clears throat> Mercedes. And this was kind of a, an interesting setup. So that was... This is the maroon yeah, one, right? Yeah. So yep. the imprint stuff. So okay. That before we got into that car, um, Steve had gotten a promotion and was spending more time, we'll just say up front and less time in the bay. And that allowed us to bring somebody else onto the team. And we kind of looked around at some options and and you know had tried to hire some people and ran into some issues, you know, it is corporate America and you have to be a good mm-hmm. upstanding citizen to, uh, <laughs> to get hired there. Maybe some, maybe some people listening know uh, who that I'll is. I'll leave it right there. And, um, someone listening right now is like, oh, that's me. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, and that's when I reached out to Brent who I'd known since back when I worked at Anaba and he was, sponsored by by sonic and had a, a really custom car and we'd kind of kept in touch through the years and presented brent with the opportunity and he jumped on it and he and his i can't remember if she was his wife or girlfriend at the time but uh moved on out and so it was going to be brent and i building this car and brownie would you know spend as much time as he could help him and it was, it was kind of, you know, for me, it was the first time I got to take a, you know, I got to step up a little bit and take a little more mm-hmm. uh, initiative on what we were doing. But we used to have this place that we'd go to. It was called Dark Place. And it was a Mexican restaurant uh, up the street from Alpine. And it's one of those places where it's so dark inside that every time you walk outside, you're blinded, right? And so we called it Dark Place. The tradition would always be that we would go to the dark place every time we had a big project and we would have a really long lunch and eat chips and salsa and, uh, you know, talk through ideas and kind of brainstorm there. And we'd done that with the Sinister Six and um, we wanted to do a two seat car. We wanted to have speakers in good locations, but we wanted to show off the kind of tuning capabilities and and be able to sit in the car and have a conversation with someone and explain, you know, the processor that had tuned the car and, and how the processor worked and kind of give them that whole experience. And instead of doing that center drive, it was let's do, you know, side by side seating and we can tune for two seats. We can tune for one seat. We can, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And when we, uh, again, we were kind of persuaded to use a Mercedes that year. And the Mercedes that we used was actually mercedes uh demo vehicle that had gone on the car show circuit so that was the same car like the rls had a show car life long before we had it it was you know the all the big north american auto shows it was the the rls on display and but clearly it was like a girl before she got the boob job yeah 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 it definitely looked different before we we put our hands on it and um 
the whole kind of concept was taking the taking out the minivan side of it and focusing on the CLS had just come out and we all just kind of loved mm-hmm. the window line of the CLS. And we we're like, what if you had this like big SUV version of a CLS? And that's where those body lines kind of the, the thought process behind those body lines. And you'd have to go back and, and see it. So it's funny you say that because I remember the car looking a lot like a CLS and not an RLS. So with you saying that you tried using the CLS as inspiration, to me, it looked like a CLS. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was an R500 and we wanted to give it that CLS influence. And that's where we came up with RLS. Hmm. Yeah. The imprint RLS because of the marketing message that we had to give with the car. So, um, yeah, so we, we went full steam, you know, same type of process. Um, how it ended up working out was that Brownie would go work up front in the morning and then in the afternoons, you know, he would come and work into the night with us on the car. And yeah, I mean, we, we kind of divided and conquered, I think Brownie's, you know, he, he, I know he basically did all the door mechanisms. I spent a lot of time on the front end in the hood. There's a really good story of, of, you know, when stuff goes wrong on this one, we'll get to in a minute, but yeah, but that one, we, we framed that whole body out. I think there's some video somewhere. We had the whole car just built is like a wireframe. Like it looks like a wireframe mm-hmm. CAD model. And just like the, the sinister six, we basically unwired the whole car again, stripped the car in like a day, unwired it basically where the fresh air intake box was under the hood. I took all the wire looms and was able to bundle them all up and put them inside the fresh air box, basically in the engine compartment. And, um, yeah, same thing, disconnected stuff, making sure it ran. We got it all the body all framed out, but before we glass anything on this one, we did metal. Um, you know, I felt like, I felt like when we did the BMW, there was like a little, a little hint of like cheesiness that we framed a lot of the body out of wood and fiberglass over it. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, if we had more time or more money or more budget, yeah, you'd do all that. You'd make a mold of it and then you'd lay up a single fiberglass part and bond it back to the car. But it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, we built this entire car in three months. Like it was just kind of what it had to be. And, and again, it's held up to this day. So when you're taking things out of the car, you're just like removing the BCM and you're like, is, will it, will it run? No, no, no. I mean, we, we know the obvious stuff, but the, you know, every time you're in a car and you see a module and you're like, I don't know what that is. And sometimes you'll like enter yeah, a part yeah, number yeah, yeah. Or to figure out what it is. Like we're trying to figure out what everything in the, like literally everything in this car and what can we get rid of? So, you know, every stupid transponder relay or like, there's just all sorts of stuff that's just not needed. And again, does it start? Does it run? Does it drive mm-hmm. back and forth? And that's cool. That's and a yeah, cool so movie. we got this one stripped out. We got all the the body was done. Uh, I want to say we used like three sixteenths steel rod to get the the main body lines, and we just literally built it welding these rods into place to make our form. And I remember ripping the thing up the back alley because that thing has a five liter in it. I mean, it it had a lot of horsepower. I don't remember how much horsepower, but it, it had some balls. And then by the time there were no doors, no hood, no hatch, mm-hmm. no seats. It's a crop rocket. Oh, my gosh. It was insanely fast. Like, it was, like, obnoxious, scary fast. And, um, yeah, so 
I mean, nothing too crazy on that build. You know, we, you spent a lot of time doing body work and, you know, again, I thought the wood was kind of a, like the thing I was least proud of on the Sinister Six was the, the way we had to go about doing what we did to meet the time and Mm -hmm. all that. And so this one, we felt much better about doing the steel as the framework. And then, um, same thing. We just basically glassed over the top of it and Brownie had kind of built the seat mechanisms. That's the one that had, it was basically like what he had learned on the turret of the BMW. Mm-hmm. He applied to the the seat mechanism for the doors and kind of did these dual suicide doors that pivot in with the seat mm-hmm. and the door attached to each other, which I thought was really cool. But it was basically built as here was the, the outside of the body. Here was the pivot piece, right? And then we basically bonded it together and then cut the door out so mm-hmm. that it would, it would swivel. And that way the body, body work went right through. So that one, um, we had some friend, some help from my friend, Robert, uh, actually on both cars doing the body work and, and blocking and getting them set up. Right. And, uh, I remember that we would, we would be blocking on this body. Like it seems like for just weeks, right. Like trying to get these, these big dish doors and these body lines crisp. And I felt like every night we would, we would, uh, get it all done and like, okay, we'll put another coat of primer on it and we'd spray a coat of primer on it. And then we come back the next day and we start blocking on it and it would be crooked again. And we're like, well, we just fixed all this yesterday. Like, and this, this went on for like a week, like every night we're like trying to get these doors right and everything. And it turns out the one thing that we didn't take into account with doing it at a higher level this time was the steel and the the shrink factor of the steel. So every night it would get cold and the steel would be in one position and we'd block it all out and put primer on it. <laughs> and then we'd come back in during the day and start blocking on it again and it would be warm and the steel would be in a different place. And um, that that ended up kind of being my least favorite part about that car was that, you know, it kind of moved around a little bit. I mean, the car was just, absolutely insane it was menacing looking like Mm -hmm. you know whatever it was 28s on the back back then Mm -hmm. like it was just they were massive we had a girl that worked with us um jennifer kwan and she was we'll just say she's not the tallest person in the world but we have a picture somewhere of her standing next to the wheel and it's like she's not that much taller than the wheel and tire like it's like holy crap no Um, i mean that that's one of the cars that really stick out to me in my memory of alpine and i I don't know if it's recency effect but I mean, it, it did look really, really cool. The interior was really cool. Yeah. that um, It was just s- smooth and sleek and classy. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, we'd kind of gone a little different direction with the Sinister Six and that we kind of went with that evil, dark, like um, Noah, who mm-hmm. went on to become a Disney artist, was the one that uh, was doing all the airbrushing on the Alpine cars. And mm-hmm. he had done the the x5 the year before and then we went to them went to him with this idea that we wanted this like menacing like i i think the words that that we might have used were we wanted to scare small children when they see it like we want it to be evil we want it to be sinister and he came up with that crazy whatever it is on the hood and mm-hmm. and all the detail work in there and the we basically we had kind of flipped it on the BMW and then we kind of wanted to flip it right back just to keep changing things up. And we wanted to go for the first time on one of these wild Alpine builds. We wanted to go with just an elegant paint job and, and a little more refined and 
that's when we, you know, got the crazy idea of doing this candy paint job on there and yeah, just took it in a, in a different direction. So the, the one story that, that really stands out is that out of everything on that car, the hood really took longer than it should have and just way too much body work and, and back and forth to get it the way we wanted it. And at some point, we're going to set the car down. It had been on jack stands and we're going to get a look at it down on the ground and I'm bringing it, it down. And I'm under the impression that there's air in the air struts up front. Right. Uh Oh, and it turns out there's not. And so as I let the car down, the front end of the car, the bodywork of the front of the hood, which is all basically molded as mm-hmm. one piece. It, it's so very it's much up. Yeah. Well, it seems like a, it seems like the hood of a Volkswagen bug. Like it mm-hmm. goes basically all the way from the windshield, all the way down to the ground. And at some point that hood piece bottoms out on the body of the Jack and the Jack continues to let the, the car down and, it's Brent and Steve and I, and like, you can just hear the cracking of the fiberglass. Like it's just, it just goes. <laughs> and like, by the time you realize what's happening, you get the jack handle turned and you get a couple pumps on the jack back up. Like you already know it's too late. And much like, and, and again, this is like, we're trying to get the car to paint. We're trying to get the car to paint. We were so excited. You're about ready to be so excited to see the car on the ground for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then you're basically like, you have no idea how much damage was just done to this thing. And, you know, you just don't even like, I don't think we said a word to each other. I just jacked the car back up and started unbolting the hood so I could pull it off and see where we were at. And it's, it's just, it is what it is at that point. I- you're, like you could sit there and cry about it or you can get back to work and fix it. And that's exactly. Or you could call it a night and regroup the next day. No, absolutely not an option. Not an option. You got it. You got to get it fixed and get the team back on track. Yeah. Mm. So much crazy stuff. So yeah, I don't want to eat up like too much insane time talking like every one of these Mm -hmm. stories. I'm sure we'll. Yeah. They'll all resurface. Yeah. They'll resurface as we do in more and more of these podcasts. But basically, you know, we, so we how how, how many cars did you build total at Alpine? Okay, big so, show cars. So big show cars. It was the Sinister Six. It was mm-hmm. that RLS. And then the mm-hmm. next year, there's a whole crazy story where that's the year we ended up doing the boat. And that was... We did oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the GLS Mercedes, which was the tow vehicle for the boat. And yeah, um, we'll, we'll probably get into that with Steve. Yeah, yeah. We can totally get into that. And um, yeah, that was my last big project there. And when I had started there, I... You know, I'd kind of been prepped by Mike Vu and um, Yato of kind of what that job entailed. And my goal was to get in there and do two cars and then move on to somewhere else. You know, I really wanted to go either onto the product development side or the OEM side. And I was kind of hoping that's where that job would progress. And, you know, as things changed and then we got into the boat project and I, again, I'm not a boat guy. I didn't have the same passion for the boat as I did for the other cars. And so I think that that just kind of accelerated my burnout of that whole Mm -hmm. major demo car kind of building thing. And it just so happened that at the same time I got offered kind of an exciting job and something different that was closer to home and paid more money. And um, it was just kind of felt like the right time. You know, I had kind of thought before 
uh, I took the job at Alpine. I was kind of thinking that it was time to go back to less, you know, not, not so much doing the fabrication and take it a little easy and maybe get a desk job again and that kind of thing. And then when the Alpine job presented itself as an option, you know, I wasn't going to turn it down. So I felt that I kind of run, run my course with that stuff. And I learned a lot and gotten to do some really amazing stuff and meet all sorts of people and do all sorts of fun stuff. And then here I had this opportunity that ended up being in the point of purchase display world. And I got kind of lured away and it was actually kind of odd. It wasn't for the car audio division, but uh, I got hired by a display company that uh, had a huge project with Pioneer and they needed help on the fabrication, the design and the engineering side and the practical application of putting electronics onto a display. And one of the guys that worked there was one of my old contacts from Sony that had gone to work for Monster Cable for a while. And I got to, you know, work 15 minutes from home instead of driving to LA every day. And it just, it, it was kind of time and worked out that way. Hmm. And that lasted for a, lasted for, I don't know, probably, I want to say probably three years or so. And that, that company kind of hit some rocky times and, the, the time kind of happened to leave and I had some other work to do and, and was doing some other stuff with Alpine and basically went and rented some spot, some, some space at a Mike Vu shop who was out on his own at that, that point in time and started doing stuff out of there and, and was doing point of purchase display and was doing car audio and helping out other places and with some other shops and, and cutting parts for guys. And I'd, you know, I had my own CNC and was, was making stuff and, uh, still doing mobile solutions classes that whole time, even through working at the display mm-hmm. company and kind of having fun. what, 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 what year is this? So I left Alpine in, I want to say early, I think it probably would have been partway through 08. Cause I think I did some stuff with them for CES 09 and, um, yeah. And then, so by the time I went to the display company and then, went back and started on my own. This was probably uh, middle of the year, end of the year, 2014, probably six years ago. And so okay. I've been on my own for, for about six years. And again, still been doing trade show stuff and display stuff. And yeah, yeah it's, it's funny. It's funny how all this kind of comes full circle because all of your experience, I, I always just know by when we go to CES, we walk through CES and you're like, Oh yeah, I built that. I built that display, and then we walk through like Pioneer, and you're like, "Oh, I did those door panels." <laughs> and then you're oh, just like, "Like, yeah. no matter where you walk through, it's like you have some part of the skin in the game." Yeah, I mean, of some <laughs> random part, whether it's a display, whether it's a car, the boat. I think one year we we did that yeah, little boat yeah. for Stinger and Amp. The guys at yeah. Amp, yeah, and, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. Just random stuff. Just so and, many random little I projects. Cut parts for this guy who built that car, and you know, just kind of yeah. all over the place. Yeah, yeah it is a, a wild range of things that that I've been doing, and um, we'll talk a little bit when when we have Brownie on about their whole thing where they've they've moved. They were sending me a lot of work, and it was really nice and nice that I had that relationship and. And stayed close with those guys and got to do a lot of fun projects with them even after I had left. And especially since I had opened mm-hmm. my, my shop up. And when they moved back to Detroit, it kind of made me kind of relook at my business and and realize that that stuff probably wasn't coming. And that's when I kind of made the decision to get back to my passion, which was car audio. And that's where I am mm-hmm. today is doing back to doing high-end uh, car audio. 
And so, so after you left the display company, is that when you started your own business? Yeah. yeah. So that's when, when okay. defined, and it's kind of weird. Like I, I, I knew it when I opened the business that I was trying to hunt for a name that didn't scream anything specific, right? Like most guys want to, mm-hmm. if they have a car audio shop, they want it to be like in the name or something. And I'm like, define concepts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it kind of, at some point, my wife still thinks the name is absolutely terrible. And that was how I looked at what I did, right? Like it, it's, it's what we do. It's not who we are. It's, it's what we do. We help people define their ideas and their concepts. And we, we did that on the display side and we did that on the audio side. And it, I wanted this kind of generic name for a business. I had no idea where I'd mm-hmm. be two years later, let alone five mm-hmm. or six years later. And so now we're, we're kind of going through a little bit of a rebranding now. The name's so much cooler once you explain like its origin. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Like, like I, I, I've, I've always known, known the name, but as you, as you explain where it originated from, yeah. it makes way more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it made sense to me. And again, most of the people that were coming to me for work, they don't care if it was called, you know, yeah. <laughs> one of my <laughs> friends, Josh always tells me, he goes, you should rename your shop and call it Gary-O's Stereos. <laughs> and I'm like, I kind of like that. I, it might stick. I actually might make some shirts like that. I think it'd be fun. That that definitely rolls off the tongue. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. No, but 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 much much like, uh, you know, my brand, Mosaic, people, are, people mispronounce it. They're like, Mosaic or... I don't even know how they say it, but they just say it all these different ways. And I'm just like, oh, it's called, oh, they they call it Muzak. And I'm like, Muzak? Like, no. So much like mine, Musaic is a spin-off mosaic, which obviously is a bunch of pictures to make an overall picture, right? Mm-hmm. So much like what what I do or what we do is there's a lot of things that go into making the overall picture of music. And that is the overall layer of the artistic, just the, the engineering of sound quality, all of that to make music, uh, mosaic. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like an artsy fartsy type of bringing together all the different details of what we do. Uh, and it's also the same thing, like you said, if you Google something, you don't want to have a thousand different hits right. with with whatever, you know, car, car toys. Right, right. Yeah. There's probably, so, uh, there's, you know, 50 uh, shops called Audio Concepts somewhere across the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yep. yeah so it's, it's, it's totally that for me. When we started, I used that tagline that was on all the, like, you know, the, the poker chip business cards and all the business cards and T-shirts and everything always said, Design. It would always have the Define Concepts logo, and it would say Design, Engineer, Fabricate, and that's how I always like to break all of our projects mm-hmm. down. You start with the design, then you engineer mm-hmm. it, and then you go make it. You go fabricate it. Mm-hmm. And so, what we've done recently is we're getting back into the car audio. Is I've changed that at least for some of the branding moving forward, where we're just going with mobile audio file systems, and that's just kind of where we're where we're at. And who knows? Uh, give it another three or four years and maybe that'll change too. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, we're rolling with it yeah. and having fun. Yeah. I mean, those taglines are good. I've, you know, my taglines engineered for you. Cause I mean, the, the biggest thing that tilts me is anytime that I get a, a YouTube message or an email and they're like, you know, how much to duplicate this on this job. <laughs> 
And I'm just like, well, one, you really have no earthly idea of, you know, most people don't have an idea or a grasp on the equipment used, right? They might see like 10 Moscone zero amplifiers and be like, yeah, how much to duplicate right. this? And then if, if you just spit out like 45 grand <laughs> because the equipment cost 30 grand, they would think that you're an idiot. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And for for us, we we start with expectations and a budget. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the only way that you can even design something for somebody because, you know, it's the same thing with if I wanted a, a pool in my yard, right? I don't have a million dollar budget. So you, you don't need to build me a pool king's <laughs> freaking pool outside. They're going to design something around my idea of a pool and my expectations of a pool. Yeah, I so I have a good question. I, I don't even yeah I don't even respond <laughs> as in like I'm like these are not mass produced. I, it's not like I have this system that I can just ship you and install for X amount. Right. You know we're going to start with what's important to you and what it is your expectations are, and then we can start developing a design around what it is you're after. So. When we first started talking about doing a podcast, one of the things that we touched on and kind of in that brainstorming session was talking about helping to like guide customers that are looking to meet their audio goals within a vehicle, right? And mm -hmm. and how difficult that process can be and try to give some insight from, you know, how we design systems and what we think is important and, and how all that goes. And one of the toughest situations I have is telling a customer that I need a budget, right? Mm -hmm. And it's always an awkward conversation. I don't know how you approach that or or bring that up with customers, but I feel like there are so many options and there's so many scenarios where every hundred dollar bill would change how I would do a system. And I, of course. I love, yeah. I love putting a system design together. Like I spend way more time. I, I guarantee you that between you and I, we are probably the two that put more thought into what we're going to put into a car and analyze the options and the choices. Mm -hmm. And without a budget with like my brain, I, I could just work on system designs for months at a time. Like, right. How? Yeah. And I mean, that's what I tell most people is. When you start a system design, obviously I'm all about return on your investment, right? So if your budget is 12 grand, I'm going to maximize the 12 grand to give you the, the most return on your investment for that money. Right. And if you're starting out with an entry level system and by, and again, this is all relative to the installer, but my entry level system is going to be a system that's done correct. You have a DSP, you have you know, obviously speakers, amplifiers, subwoofer, if we can, running everything active. So we have the most manipulation over the soundstage. And when you get past that entry-level system and you say you expand your budget $1,200, well, you can have a dramatically different set of speakers or a dramatically different amplifier. Therefore, you're getting a dramatically different product. Right. It's, it's the same amount of money to install three-way set of flax as it is a three-way set of utopias right. the same labor involved but if you pony up the difference in the product you get a completely different product and if you're spending five grand or six grand or eight grand and you can find a way to stretch it to where you're comfortable you can 
obviously there's a point of diminishing diminishing returns where you're not going to get the like just dramatic differences really quickly but at the same time once you start going through those progressions you can dramatically get the difference you know what i'm saying and really get a return on your investment because if you're spending seven grand i'm sure you can spend nine grand and if you do that, you're going to get a dramatically different product. And it's always better to do it in one shot and do it in the beginning. As much as I try to leave for for those people that are on the fence, like a lot of systems that we do, we, we try to think when it's kind of, when, when a customer's on the fence and they're like, I'd really like to go for the all out package or, or I, I wish I would, I was in a position to spend another three or four grand. I'm not, here's where I'm at. And we kind of, I asked that question of, do you want to leave that system optimized for every penny you've spent or are going to spend or leave it optimized for further upgrades down the road? Because that will totally depend on like, Hey, is it worth having a couple extra bucks towards a processor that has another two channels now? Right. Or are we, Mm -hmm. are we saying we're never going to touch this again and six channels is enough and we're just going to leave it that way. But if you want to upgrade later, (laughs) you close your door and now we're going to have a used processor. We need to replace with another one and that kind of stuff. Some really interesting decisions. And part of that to me, it's like, I feel like system design is, it's like a puzzle to me. Like in my brain, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to solve what is the greatest possible combination of ingredients of to make this, this price, right yeah. in this environment. Yep. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And this the so, stuff that we've been doing lately with the the Tundra systems and the kind of prepackaged, like this is this is what we do in that price point, has really driven that home, trying to squeeze every inch of everything that we can out of a system and make mm-hmm. it repeatable and and at a price that's insane which we're, we're happy to say we've done some amazing stuff. I have some, I have some stuff to tell you about off the air. <laughs> off air. So define concepts. Yeah. You start the business. Yeah. How long did it take to, did you already have a name that you thought about over the period of your career to create a shop? Because oh, no. I, I feel like most <laughs> installers always have that in their back pocket. Like Mosaic, it's something that was totally manufacturer the name was there i mean when i was in virginia my license plate said music oh nice i did I didn't like that's that. how yeah close yeah. close i was actually i i was gonna open a shop in virginia and one of my clients at the time was going to be a uh investor in the company and i just i got all the way 99 percent of the way to where I just had to give the okay to actually do it and I couldn't do it. And the, the my biggest hang up was understanding that if I'm owning a business, it's going to be just me. I have to do the sales. I have to do, I mean, stuff that I do now, but at the same time, if I wanted to grow it, then I'd have to step away from the fabrication, right. which means I would need another me in order to do the fabrication of the stuff that I'm selling, right? The stuff that people are seeing on YouTube that has to be created. And if I have to do payroll and all this other stuff, it's kind of difficult. And how's that going to work? And then I had to weigh my family time along with that, right? right? So if you're opening a business, you might as well say goodbye to your family for a good five, six, seven years. And at that time, 
I had already worked for maybe six years at the time, working six days a week, driving an hour and 20 minutes to and from work every single day, each way, right? So at that moment in time, the one thing that I didn't want to do was say goodbye to my family. I, I felt like that would be a death wish to my marriage. Right. I felt like it would just ruin everything. So I just decided not to do it. And fast forward another year and a half, I get an opportunity to basically run a business within a business. I don't have the overhead. I don't have to worry about payroll. I don't have to worry about the little things you would typically have to worry about. All I have to worry about is the jobs at hand and to finish the jobs at hand, but I can do it under the umbrella of Mosaic and how I want to operate right. things. Yeah, that's a good setup. I wish I had that some days. And when I say some yeah. days, I mean most days. <laughs> but yeah. you're you're very uh, fortunate to have a really good partner in that. And um, yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I mean, it worked out well. And uh, I still have a typical normal work schedule. And I feel like knowing you and Tom and Jeremy and Chris. And I mean, I could go down the list of people who own their own shop and it's seems more than not that it's a six, seven day a week <laughs> grind all the time. Yep. And I just don't even know how I could function or even still be married right. with kids and give my kids time. Cause you know, my youngest one, I, I like literally didn't see her much cause I would get home and it'd be nighttime. Right. I would leave before like she'd be awake and I'd get home after she's in bed. So I could really only see her Sunday and that was tough. And, uh, obviously my second daughter had a completely different relationship with, I completely like raised her. My wife, uh, she's a nurse and she had a pretty extreme schedule and I felt like I just completely raised her and, uh, it was completely different. So like now, Family time is awesome. Weekends, I, you know, pretty much hang out with them. My wife generally works on the weekends, but um, it's good now. Very good. It's awesome. Very good. Cool. I feel like that's a that's got us up to date, and hopefully we're we're done talking about my journey. But I feel for like a the cli- I feel like the climax of your journey. You're just like yeah to find concepts and that, like that's no, where you're at now. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's, it's been a long There's day. No. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm. Why, why, why the poker chip? Why, why the, the gambling background? Is that just primarily because of CES and SEMA, <laughs> the time in Vegas? So, and wh- where, where does that come okay, into play? So I remember a story. So, so what Matt's talking about is when I went into business, my first year, I think it was CES. I think SEMA had passed. In a background, Gary has a poker chip, which is kind of like his card. Yeah. So if you I have will. a I have a poker chip that has my name and my logo and my email address on it. And I remember my dad telling me a story. I want to say it was from the Stardust back in the day. And it was basically like uh the one of the managers or somebody that that it might have been my grandfather knew or something. Um, he had his business card is a poker chip. And it was like a $10 poker chip with his his stuff on it. And he would hand him out. And the funny part was that you could literally go to the table and play it. 
Like, and they knew that you'd gotten it from the, the casino host or whoever this guy was, but it was his business card and it was a poker chip. And that kind of always stuck in the back of my mind. And when uh, I was going to CES and I wanted to do something that was, you know, I'm always wanting to do something that's unique and mm-hmm. something different. And yeah. here we are in Vegas for a lot of trade shows and I'm trying to make the biggest impression I can with everyone that I come across and letting them know like, Hey, I'm out on my own. I'm doing my own thing. If you need anything here, I am. And you know, you're, you're holding your hand out looking for work basically. Right. And Mm -hmm. while you're seeing a bunch of people that you've known for years or met along this journey and that kind of stuff. And so I wanted a lasting impression. And so what I did is I went and I ordered whatever it was, 500 poker chips from Amazon. And then I had a friend that had a printing company and we printed up little stickers and stuck the stickers on each side. And as I would run into acquaintances or, or get introduced to people, I would put a poker chip in my hand and I would stick my hand out and shake their hand with, and transfer the poker chip in the handshake. Mm -hmm. And it always, yeah, I mean, it was, it's old school Vegas cool, right? Like it's, it's old fashioned, right? Like it's, it's kind of old schooly way of doing it. And is what would happen is they would every single time they would be like, what did this person just put in my hand, right? Like expect mm-hmm. who knows what it is. And then they would look down and they would flip it over and they'd read the other side. So they've seen my name. They've seen defined concepts. They've seen that it's a poker chip. They would just automatically smile and then they would look at my face. And I've mm-hmm. totally, w- when you talk about making impressions, whether it's online or whatever, in, in person, I made that person in the middle of this trade show stop what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Look at my logo, look at my name, look at my face, and they remember me. And I, to this day, get people that are like, you're the poker chip guy, you're the poker chip guy, or coolest business card ever, or whatever whatever it is. And I, I never really kept track of how much business that brought me, but it was kind of something fun. I actually just found about a dozen of them in my desk. That's cool. But I feel like you're going to have to step it up in 2021 because obviously nothing's going to happen in 2020. (laughs) But in 2021, I feel like you're going to have to incorporate magic with the poker chip (laughs) because just handing it in 2021 is kind of lame. So so 2021, you're definitely going to have to learn some sleight of hand, some magic. This is not going to play on the podcast, but Matt can see me and like out of nowhere. What did I just pull out? Well, we... I don't know, but we all just heard a drawer open. Okay. I can see a wand. Yeah, I have a magic wand I don't know right what, here. I don't, like on cue, you have, I have a magic hold on, wand. You're holding one, but you also pulled out three. Three. <laughs> I don't know why you have three. So, there's a story behind this. Would you like to hear it? Short through back in the drawer as you just heard yeah, it open. Sorry. I'm ruining the podcast. One's still out. Opening. I, I have one out. So I bought these as a joke because I am a practical joker and I can also be a little bit of a jerk sometimes. Um, when I worked at the display company, we had an outside engineering firm and some inside engineers. And occasionally they would do things where I, I, I would basically went to the display company and it was my job to make sure that the engineers and the designers played well together because engineers want to build square boxes because they're efficient uses of space and they're easy to build. And designers want these like insanely organic shapes and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about building, you know, 1200 displays for a Best Buy, like every penny counts, like you have to be able to build something efficiently. And is what would happen is we would have even some outside engineering firms that would design things. And it's like, okay, if you make that joint, 
you're going to have to glue it together and you got to pin nail it, which means we have to put laminate over it. And that's a hand done process. that's going to take hours and hours on each display. And it just doesn't fly when you're building thousands of something. And as a joke, I bought whatever a pack of magic wands was <laughs> and I drilled the bottom out. And I'd, I would use it as a pen in meetings and people would just look at me like really funny. <laughs> and then we would review drawings and I would just pull the magic wand out and I would wave it over and I'd be like, so how is this held together right here? How does, how does that joint work? Could you explain that to me? Do you need this? And I would hand him the magic wand. Man of many bits. I'm telling you always a bit. I love always it. Always a bit. Got to be having fun when, when you're doing it. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, uh, I feel like we should wrap that up as a, as a, if you keep that all together as one episode, oh boy, Matt, that is a long one. It's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, I feel like, I feel like if you're starting, if you know Gary and you're starting the Gary Bell career podcast, <laughs> you know, you're buckling in for a little I bit. I wonder how many people actually made it this far through all of that. Sat through my, uh, my, is that my, it's not quite my life story. Um, but no, it's my, my life story since I heard a subwoofer in a car to today, we got there. Yeah. A lot of fun, a lot of fun bits, Stevie Nicks, oh, gosh. um, buddy Holly, Gary Busey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I still can't get over the Gary Busey story. Yeah. That's so good. I feel like I should have known that story before the podcast. Yeah. I, you know. A lot of it, a lot of times it takes something to jog my memory to remember all this stuff, but yeah, um, it has definitely been an adventure, a crazy, crazy, crazy adventure. So luckily we uh, we're still doing it. What's 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 the single most important thing you learned at Alpine? You are you saying that from strictly a fabrication or build? No, I'm or... saying it could be a life lesson. It could be anything. That like the number one thing that you were meant to work at Alpine for you to be where you're at today. Wow. It's always better to spend somebody else's money. Does that count? Does that count? <clears throat> I just said, I feel like that's a cheap answer. It's a cheap answer. There's so, I learned so much. I grew so much while I was there. I mean, I, I had had a hell of a path leading up to it. I honestly feel like it would be that nothing's off the table that like whatever idea, crazy idea that you can have, you could execute it. Yeah. I mean, I, that was, I, I feel like I had had that kind of philosophy previous. Um, like we talked about some of those Sony cars and the, the Chevy standard cab truck that we shoved, whatever it was, 28 televisions in because it was the cool thing. And that's what we thought was pushing the, the edge at the time. And yeah, I think that the Alpine was definitely a confidence builder in that we um, really got to, just do whatever we thought was going to make something cool or different or better. Um, I would say that, that at Alpine, the most important thing that happened was actually pushed upon me by Jeremy Carlson. How odd is that? Okay. And that was the push to buy a CNC machine. And, um, I was able to add Alpine. And what, what, what year was this? Um, it was in between the RLS and the boat. The boat was the first big project we used it on. So that was oh six oh seven ish. Okay. Yeah. And so in conversation with Jeremy, he was really, you know, I would say, let's just go back a little bit. So RLS was the first 
uh, year in car that I really had uh, Brian's templates. That was as Brian was getting all the mm-hmm. solutions going. And actually the grill on the RLS is all his arc templates <laughs> make up mm-hmm. the grill on the RLS and some of the hood bows and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but in talking to Jeremy, he really pushed me to, to get a CNC and I had, you know, I had no drawing program experience, no CAD experience, none of that. And he, he gave me the confidence to like push for it. And, you know, it took a little bit of doing and some creative, you know, begging for budget (laughs) to buy it, but we bought a, a shop bot and it showed up and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to not learn how to use it. And so that's, Mm -hmm. that's what kind of pushed me into doing CAD work. And, um, that became super important when I went to the display company and I'm reviewing drawings. And so I think that that was probably the biggest growth for me. There was, was learning CAD. And, and again, I feel like it's pretty standard these days. There's a lot of audio shops, a lot of guys. It's funny you say that today. Just today, I'm I'm going back in time to this morning when we have fairly two new people. I don't even know what their backgrounds are because I generally stay doing what I do. So I really don't see a lot of the sound effect stuff on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, we're growing so much that we're constantly hiring new people. But I know that uh, there was these two newer employees that were doing speaker adapters in like this newer GM. And it was Alpine type S speaker in the front. And I'm just watching them. They're asking, hey, is there a template for this? And they grab one off the wall because one's already pre-made. But obviously the hole is bigger than the Alpine type S. So they're not easily going to transfer it over without grabbing an oversized bit to reduce it and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just like, all right, come over here to the computer real quick. And I load up the the, the document of the GM adapter that I've built and I show them how to load it in the software. And then I click on the circle and I'm like, all right, we measure the new circle with the type S and we reduce it. And then we print everything out and you could just see their faces. They're just like, holy shit, <laughs> this is, this is so much quicker right, right. and easier. And then I show them how to like tap the holes for like an eight thirty second bolt and just all the process of how to do this to make this like really cool adapter. And then just telling them, okay, as you're getting into this job next time, go to the computer, you dial up your two adapters or four adapters, however you need. And then you go back to doing whatever, running your wires. And then you come back here 25 minutes later, you grab your adapters, you use the Forstner bit, you use the chamfer bit, all this kind of stuff to make the adapter perfect. And then you bring it back to the car and you're good to go. Right. And it's going to be way better than any Metro adapter, any plastic adapter, any PVC adapter. You're grabbing this. It's perfectly made for your speaker to fit in this car. And it's little moments like that that we take for granted because we do on a daily basis. You know what I yeah. mean? Like we take that such for granted, that whole process. And those two people seeing that happen and knowing that, maybe they can reproduce that next time. They're just like, holy shit. Right. It's, it's and it's eye-opening. funny because even the stuff that I post on Instagram, I feel like I can post a completed picture of a trunk that's that looks badass with a lot of shit going on. But at the end of the day, the most simplest things that people can associate with, like a speaker adapter, 
seems to get like the most feedback and engagement. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very funny. Well, I, I, again, I think that that's key. And then having somebody that, that is going to instill that confidence and show that and pass that along. And I, I feel like the best fabricators today are still the ones that learned it by hand and then have added mm-hmm. the automation in to help speed that up. Yeah. And, and because you got to understand how to engineer and the problems to foresee stuff because people who just engineer right away, they don't have the, the, the knowledge and experience to foresee problems. I I get accused sometimes of being a very negative person and it's because I'm always looking for what's going to go wrong Mm -hmm. with something. Right. Right. And that's how I confirm that I'm doing it the right way was finding what's wrong with every other way of doing it. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's knowledge. I believe my, uh, my, my dad taught that to me. He says, uh, experience is knowledge acquired from fucking stuff up. And I have lots of experience. My favorite quote is the masters failed at everything. The beginners never tried. Yeah, it's definitely, if, if we're going to give a part, impart some wisdom to the listeners, um, at least to the guys that are out there fabricating and learning and, and doing that stuff is a hundred percent. Do not be afraid to fail. Like if you're Mm -hmm. afraid to, to even take a chance or to do it, like, again, there's, build upon your knowledge don't you know you don't start off trying to hit off of nolan ryan as a pitcher you you start off on a yeah. t start with easy tasks that you can accomplish but yeah but don't be afraid to fail and and just keep working at it and don't give up yeah so it's funny like when i kind of like what i alluded to 30 minutes ago i feel like you and i vibe so well because i feel like when we build something custom we kind of do it the same way where it's not like this full drawn out picture, but we have an idea in our head of how to execute it. And then you foresee all of the different problems that can go wrong. And that's how you navigate through the build to the end. But at the same point, like when you and I work together at mobile solutions, we are not afraid to just try some off the wall thing in in efforts that we might fail or not get something done on time. Yeah. yeah. I think that the, having the confidence in yourself over time, I mean, it takes, it takes time to build that confidence, but you know that if this doesn't work, you'll find something that does and you'll learn why not to do it the way you thought you could do it right. the first time. And, and you'll actually gain some experience there. And it's funny too, because like looking at the other aspect, every time that I work with Tom, you know, Tom has a completely drawn out sketch right of exactly what it's going to look like. And me and him, I feel like work so efficiently together that we just mow through the project. And then the last day we are pretty much finished in the morning. And then we just kind of jive together and we're like, well, we can make this better. We can make this more detailed. And we just spend the whole last day just figuring out what better finish work we can do to the part. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not experimenting, we're not trying <laughs> yeah. something outrageous. That's like we are. That's you know, we're always up to the last minute because we're literally pushing the envelope. Yeah, yeah. Tom, Tom's so refined in his drawing, and and it's so cool to have his ability to envision something and then put it in a picture that everyone understands what the goal is. And it's always mm. it's always easier to build to a rendering 
to a loose rendering, right? Like I have some customers that on our kind of prototyping side that we do stuff for where we're, we're building to spec. I mean, we, we have parts that have to interface with other parts that are being machined or, or built and possibly interfacing with existing parts in a car. And it has to be like exact tolerance where usually most of what we're doing in a car, we get to be slightly creative to fit. And that's kind of, nice. well, the reason a lot of Tom's designs work well in the things that he does is because they're often modular designed. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's not really incorporated to fit flush with all the side panels. It's more of a modular piece that's bolting on in front or top of a certain part. So you don't have to worry about the constraints and the variances as much, which would then throw off your, your rendering, if you will. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, I feel like we stretched this into like a 10 hour podcast. So my, that's my way of saying, I think we should, we should draw a line. I know we never, all right, that's fine. I know we never want to stop doing this with, I could talk for another hour. I know, but we'll save it for the next one. All right. That's it. It's done. That's it. We're it's we over. Just, we just yep. call it done. We, we, we yep. hit the wall. Okay. We're, we yep. never know when to say stop. So we're saying stop. On to the next All one. All right. Thank you guys for uh, for putting up with that. And and hopefully we get a whiskey bourbon sponsor. Yeah, one shortly. of these days we will. I feel like. Because my cup is looking pretty low. Yeah, I feel like we haven't had and to apologize to anybody. a pretty expensive habit. Oh, yeah. That's, that is true. Pretty expensive habit. So we're done. I don't I don't think we have anybody we have to apologize to. No apologies to today. And, nope. Except for that one box that we threw in the trash at Alpine. The ass end of the Sinister Six. We apologize to for throwing you away we'll never we'll, ne- we'll never know what it truly lo- would it look like hope there's not even a picture somewhere it looked bad <laughs> enough that we threw it away all right matt thank you thank you um thank you buddy we'll see you guys next time cheers to my empty glass cheers